0: I am willing to wager twenty thousand pounds that I will make a tour of the world in eighty days or less. You accept? Accept. I accept. Train leaves for Dover this evening. Good evening, gentlemen.
1: Hello
2: everyone and welcome finally to Season 5 of 80 Days in Exploration podcast. Today's podcast is brought to you by three history and geography nerds in an internet power balloon. This podcast is dedicated to discussing little known countries, territories, settlements and cities from around the world. My name is Luke Kelly, I'm broadcasting from Dublin, Ireland and joining me as ever are... Mark Boyle
3: in Surrey in the UK.
2: And Joe Byrne in Galway, Ireland. And in today's episode, we'll be talking about Kaliningrad, formerly Konigsberg, a city on the Pregolia River at the head of the Vistula Lagoon on the Baltic Sea. This city has a storied history, having been originally established as a Sambian or Old Prussian settlement before being administered by the state of the Teutonic Order, the Duchy of Prussia, the Kingdom of Prussia, the German Empire, the Weimar Republic, and then Nazi Germany. Shortly after the Second World War, Konigsberg and the lands surrounding it were incorporated into the USSR, being renamed Kaliningrad. As a major transport hub, the city is home to the headquarters of the Baltic Fleet of the Russian Navy, and is one of the largest industrial centres in Russia. It is situated within the Kaliningrad Oblast, which is separated by around 400km from the next nearest Russian Oblast, bordered by Poland to the south, Lithuania to the north and east, and the Baltic Sea to the west. It is therefore impossible to travel overland between the oblast and the rest of Russia without passing through at least two other countries. As of 2010, only a small number of ethnic Germans remain in the city, with most residents being recent immigrants from other parts of the Soviet Union. With a population of around 450,000, the city is similar in size to Miami, Florida or Tallinn in Estonia, and is the 40th largest city in Russia. Also Kaliningrad and the land surrounding it are home to the world's largest deposits of amber with over 90% of the world's supply. Joe, how about you tell us something you're looking forward to learning um, about today?
1: I'm particularly interested to tell you about the world's, possibly the world's first bodybuilder. Mm. who was uh, born in Königsberg, uh, one of many people of Jewish extraction who, who had interesting lives in this place. It's a, it's a city that had many lives, many, many, very different lives, and we're going to try and pick some of those through for you. Mark, what about you?
3: I was trying to think of a highlight, and all I could think of were were lowlights, <laughs> and it reminded me of a, a. I have to do a presentation for work about the year twenty twenty, and I mentioned <laughs> twenty twenty highlights, and and my boss was like, "Mark, there there were no highlights in twenty twenty. Uh, we we must call them something else." And <laughs> in this case, I think it's also true. Uh, I so uh, one of the sections I'll be talking about is is um, Königsberg uh, during World War Two, uh, and again not many highlights uh, a low light uh I'll, I'll mention is is when um uh there was a fire so bad that someone's fruit burned down um that that's 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 what i'm i'm uh foreshadowing fruit
2: as in like a piece of fruit so yeah
3: uh a bag of fruit they okay a bag of their fruit burned down yes. okay
2: yeah wow i mean fruit is mostly water so it, it's not easily burned un- that's the point yeah yeah, yeah.
3: <laughs> it was a bad fire <laughs>
1: Something interesting about this place, of course, is we haven't actually done a city in a while. We haven't. I mean, we're, we're, we're going to be talking a little bit about the surrounding area, the, the, the oblast as it is now and, and the, you know. And it's our e- second e- oblast. E- East, East, East Prussia, I suppose, um, as it was. But yeah. like we, despite mentioning cities in our intro, we, we haven't done, I don't think we had any in season four. So this is a, a rectification of that no. right at the top of season five.
2: Yep. Start as we mean to go on, rectifying all over the place. And Mark, I believe you interviewed somebody for this episode.
3: Yes. So I got to speak to Professor Nicole Eaton of Boston College. She's done an awful lot of work about... History of uh, Konigsberg and subsequently uh, Kaliningrad and, and the transition between the two. Um, and we had all, I think, independently found uh, bits and pieces of her work uh, out there in in the great wide uh, world and had been reading them. And then we reached out to her and she was very kind enough to speak to us about it.
1: And one of the anecdotes Professor Eaton shared with you, Mark, was uh, an, an interesting taste of the cultural complexity of the place we're talking about today. Yeah. And so we're going to introduce her by playing that clip.
4: I was in Kaliningrad in the mid 2000s and across Russia, it's a delight to go to farmer's markets or even sometimes just to street corners where old grandmothers will bring their agricultural produce to sell. And it could just be a basket full of apples is all that they have. It could be that they have a whole carload of things or sometimes they've made fresh jam. And the old woman, uh, and I started a conversation and she had apples for sale. She understood that I had a foreign accent. And so she sort of took it upon herself to be a cultural ambassador. And it explained to me um, in very charming Russian how good these apples were. And she said in Russian, she said, these are good apples. These are our German apples. And so this this phrase in Russian, uh, I think is so, Indicative of what Kaliningrad is and and what Kaliningrader's identity is, you know, that these were their indigenous German varietals, you know, our German apples, uh, rather than German apples. And I think that that kind of um, synthesis really um, is is what I find so delightful about Kaliningrad today.
2: So we'll be dropping clips uh, from Professor Eaton throughout this episode. So, um, you know, look forward to those. And we thank her for her contribution to this episode. Uh, as ever, you can find the full interview with Professor Eden on our Patreon page, patreon.com slash 80 days podcast. All right, let's dive in. Okay, so early history. I think that's your section, Joe. Why don't you kick us off?
1: Yes, it is. Do you know what, guys?
2: They didn't write stuff down. They
1: didn't really write stuff down. Uh, it's it's great. We definitely um, need to get that on a t-shirt, I think. <laughs> Um, and it, you know it, it's it's true everywhere. It's this is tr- as true in Russia as it is in Oceania. Before a certain point, people didn't write stuff mm-hmm. down. So I want to start with you know what may or may not be a true story. So th- th- that explains the fascinating coastline that we're dealing with. So like when you look at this area on a map, it's really weird looking. Yeah. It looks like somebody's built a fake coastline because they didn't like how messy the original coastline was i would say because the 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 Sambian peninsula which is where where Konigsberg was founded is kind of between two lagoons hmm. that are cut off from the Baltic Sea by these big sandspits that are very you know quite straight i mean a slight curve but like they they don't have many inlets and outlets they're just a a line connecting the the two opposite sides of the lagoon yeah they almost
2: so, looked like they were drawn by a uh,
1: like a protractor Yes, yeah, 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 Yeah. that's exactly what and I thought they were man-made as a result of of that and and kind of was looking into it. But so we're looking at the Sambia Peninsula in the middle. And on the south side, you've got the the Vistula Lagoon, which goes all the way to Gdansk, I think, and to the north you have the Koronian Spit, which um, people might remember, we've talked about Korland before that. Oh, yeah, which was a duchy as part of the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth that colonized Tobago, among other places. Yeah, this is where Koronia is somewhere a little bit north of of here. And that spit is actually a UNESCO World Heritage Site. So it was, according to scientists, it was built up about 5,000 years ago by the workings of the sea, the sand and the wind. However, a more plausible explanation, I believe, for the origin of the spit is uh, the Baltic legend of the giantess Neringa, who loved the Lithuanian coastline, which is what we're talking about, but was being threatened by a dragon called Naglus. Good dragon name. He wanted to marry this beautiful giant. In his rage, he stirred up the sea to destroy the coastline. So Neringa poured a strip of sand into the sea, and thus her home was protected from the storm.
0: Ah. Uh, that sounds okay, more plausible. That's a cool story. That's nice. So let's go hmm. with that.
1: So, so this myth is obviously completely true. And Science. <laughs> it's probably more likely to wave stuff. But this area is indeed renowned for something which as Luke mentioned at the top, which even to this day people marvel at and ascribe supernatural wonder to. Uh, it was once called Liquid Sun or Electra. Mm. But we now know it to be a complex macromolecular structure derived from the sap of ancient conifers. Yes, my friends, Amber.
2: Hot. <laughs> Could you sound any any more elementary school teacher? Were <laughs> really you
3: breaking it down there, yeah. But like
1: I, I didn't I didn't know this at all about Amber. Like I, I thought Amber was an Egyptian
3: thing. Wait you, you didn't know it was it was in this area of the world. No. No. Oh, all right. Okay.
1: I'd never even thought about where it came from. I thought it was I, I didn't know that either, to be honest. I thought it was one of those things that kind of crops up everywhere, like uh, like peat or coal or you mm. know
3: a, a long time ago I went to Belarus a bunch of times. And there was lots and lots of cheap amber, um, mm. and it's because of the kind of it was traded either directly to batteries from from Russia there or you know uh, through the mainland or whatever. But uh, yeah, I, I I learned that then that Kaliningrad it's kind of the thing that Kaliningrad has, yeah, um, and and pollution and frowns, and that's kind of <laughs> that's it really. Uh, but, but but amber certainly amber. Yes.
1: So as as a, as a result of this. Quite apparently quite unique um, resource. I mean, Luke mentioned it's now the home of 90% of the amber supply of the world. So that's that's a lot uh, in my books. So as a result of this, th- this general area gets a mention in some classical writings. So this is the first time it's talked about in writing, in history, shall we say. So Pytheas in the 300s BC mentions it and Pliny the Elder in the 1st century AD mentions it. Uh, Pliny was describing the tribes in Germania and he mentioned that some of them had access to amber which washed up in the sea in this general vicinity. And he mentions an Mm. island called Abalus or Balsia. Uh, No one knows exactly where that was, but it might be somewhere around Gdansk or the Cronian Spit or the Sambian Peninsula, which is where we're interested.
3: As in, like, the Baltics, Balsia, I guess. Yeah,
1: exactly. Like, somewhere in the Baltic. We don't know specifically where Pliny was talking about, but he'd also probably never been there. So this area is called the Amber Coast. It would be later exploited. In the 19th century, it was a big industry. But it was you know on the scale of bronze age industry it was it was a big deal at the time, and it was exported and traded for bronze and other metals which weren't occur that didn't occur here naturally, so that technology was brought in through trade but um yeah, the amber deposits here, largest in the world are kind of reddish yellow, which I would have said is traditional amber color, but you do get blue ambers and stuff in different regions Ooh, that's cool uh, yeah, so all amber isn't reddish yellow, but ninety percent of it is, and yeah, polymerized tree sap. And resin that was laid down about fifty-six to thirty-three million years ago, so
3: it's it's old, old sap. Fifty-six to thirty-three. The Eocene. I've just found the first hole in the storyline of Jurassic Park because I think <laughs> the dinosaurs were wiped out around the kind of sixty million there there, there thereabouts. And if sap oh, only well. hit came after that, then Hammond was talking out of his hoop.
1: This is a this is a breaking story that we need to explore. <laughs> <laughs> this one. Anyway. So all of the amber that was supplied to the pharaohs, to Mycenaean Crete, to Syria, all through the the Bronze Age, this was from Sambian Peninsula, from Corland, from this part of the world, which is bonkers in my opinion. But this isn't the first time we've come across global trade routes in the distant past. Hmm. I need to stop being surprised. Kaup, which is about thirty kilometers north of Königsberg. God bless you. you. It's right on the edge of the the Kronian Spit and Samian Peninsula, so it, it was a, a big trading site with the Swedes as well as with um, other people, and allowed Amber to go out by sea and to go along the, you know, down towards Germany and so on. So not quite Königsberg, but only a few kilometers away, there wasn't probably wasn't a town at Königsberg at this point. This whole area of the Baltic coast and parts of modern Poland were occupied by a group of peoples called the Old Prussians. Now. I foolish I always thought the Prussians were a German tribe, like the Goths or the
2: hmm, whatever yeah. or the,
1: the Alamans. And you're going to correct us, I feel. Well, I'm going to correct my own presuppositions. So the reason they're called the Old Prussians is because these were a completely different group of people, or at least a completely different culture. They were a group of West Baltic tribes who spoke a Slavo-Baltic language called Old Prussian. So Old Prussian, the language, has nothing to do with German. These were not German-speaking people. It was kind of like Lithuanian or Latvian, you know, a Baltic language. More closely related to Koronian, which is now extinct. It's an Indo-European language, like German, but also Greek and Sanskrit or Indo-European languages. So, like, it's much closer related, I would say, to Slavic languages, and particularly to, to the Baltic languages, than it is to German. I don't
2: want to presuppose our listeners, but uh, <laughs> I would think a lot of them just sort of associate Prussia with, yeah, that that's... Germany like Prussia basically just became Germany yeah and the thing is that we're as we're going to see throughout the course of this episode is that like Prussia is not moved anywhere (laughs) near as simple as that and yeah moved the adjective
1: migrated westwards exactly these Balto-Slavic tribes exactly that's into becoming a core part of German identity and then this homeland of that word is no longer German which Mm -hmm. is and is now Slavic speaking which is is now Russia interesting So, um, we'll get to all that, but the old Prussians were pagans, obviously. Um, most people were before a certain point. And they didn't write down their own history. So, we don't know a lot for certain before about a thousand when attempts at Christianization began. I think Mark's going to probably mention that. They were tribal, they organized themselves into um, just some some old Prussian words that are still known. A, a laux is a kind of a homestead or village. And the headman is called a butterthaus. Or Butta Tafs, maybe. Uh, a house father. That's nice. And some of their language has survived in place names, like some of the parts of um, Königsberg, like Sackheim and, and so on, that I'm going to mention, come from old Prussian words. The Sambian Peninsula, which is where we're talking about, was unsurprisingly um, populated by the Sambian tribe, hmm. and uh, sparsely at that. There weren't that many people here before our um, Christianizing friends turn up. It was wealthier than many of the other Prussian tribes and more connected due to the amber trade. Uh, and they also differed from most old Prussians in that they didn't cremate their dead. They built barrows and stone circles around them. And there's plenty of Bronze Age hordes discovered where people were burying their wealth with them. And also some horse burials from the second century, um, which indicate burial rites about sending things with the deceased to the afterlife. For instance, your live horse. Okay.
3: Hard to bury a live horse, I would have thought. Uh,
1: you probably... yeah, I don't know how you bury a live horse. I don't really want to dwell much more on that. Needless to say, they're still there, so they probably didn't make it to Valhalla or whatever the old Prussian equivalent was. Mm. One of the few kind of first-hand accounts we have of of the culture and region is from the 800s, the voyage of Uthera and Wulfstan, which is an Anglo-Saxon travelogue, kind of uh, my journeys around Europe. Dear King, I went to this place and the people were like this.
2: Five stars on TripAdvisor.
1: There were some quite striking observations, and, and to me, come across quite a harsh society. So, like, they ate horse and drank fermented mare's milk or mead, and possibly also horse blood. So, big into the horses. Okay. Um, what they were not big into was the uh, um, gender equality. Um, that okay. seems to have been re- real bad. And like, this is um, just bear in mind that this is an uh, 800s AD Anglo-Saxon is commenting on this stuff that he, he, he's sort of saying, you know, women were treated like servants, they weren't even allowed to sit at the table with their husbands. Wow. polygamy of up to three wives is permitted, and wives were inherited like property. So you're like, if you died, your son inherited your wife. It was Oh, yeah. oh no. Um, it sounds really... Gross. Yeah. And they... Uh, I may be misreading some of the implications of that, but it doesn't sound like a particularly egalitarian society, shall we at least agree on that
2: i think we can agree yeah and
1: again like this was done in lots of cultures but they they would leave sick infants out to die and euthanasia was pretty common like if a if a chief was not getting better the priests would be like pillow on face and the, blood in mouth the, the family would be, would agree on whether that was the best thing for their their chieftain so uh there you go Right, And that that's that's them.
3: Very pleasant.
1: Kaup, which I mentioned earlier, the, the, the trading post nearby, was raided by Harold Bluetooth's son in the 9th century.
3: Ah, mm. oh, yes, Bluetooth.
1: And in 1016, uh, King Canute the Great of Denmark, Norway and England, he of the... Hooping uh, the tides, right? Holding back the tides myth, which never happened, but you know, he also um, burned it to the ground. So Vikings were being annoying. old oh, the Vikings... Uh, One of the few remaining remnants of the old Prussian culture is the the so-called babas, or old hags, which are stone figures, two metres tall stone figures of warriors and priests, which are scattered around Poland and Kaliningrad and and various places. They're kind of cool. Atlas Obscura has an article on them. Would recommend. And then we get very close to the end of these people, when in the 1070s, Ander of Bremen mentions the tribe's name. He calls them the most humane people. That's in contrast to other accounts. And when the Crusady types arrived, they would have found that along the River Pragel, there were various settlements. There's a river running sort of two courses with various islands and ponds. And so Tfangsta was a little bit north of the river, I think. Um, and it was the biggest settlement. It probably means Oak Forest, if you believe German linguists, or Pond with a Dam, if you believe Lithuanian linguists. She goes to show how little people know about Old Prussian. It would it, it probably had a castle. Peter of Duschberg, the chronicler of the Teutonic Knights, writing in 1326, mentioned the castle, so I mean it wasn't there anymore, but it was probably some kind of significant settlement. Uh-huh. Uh, it may have been founded by a guy called Prince Zamo in the sixth century, but I only found one source that said that and couldn't find anything else. And it probably didn't really have that, that much going on in terms of trade, because a lot of the trade was happening via the sea from places like Kaup. And this would have been in quite dense forest until quite a bit later. And then you also had the fishing village of Lipnick, which means swamp village, Sackheim, which means pine resin village, and Tragheim, which means, like, forest clearing village, I think, all in Old Prussian, maybe. And they all kind of got folded into what would become Königsberg in the future. Some of those names, I'm sure, will crop up again. Mm. So, yeah, the, the this peninsula and the the spits nearby were the last places where old prussian was spoken it died out in about the 18th century and um, dramatic demographic changes are just around the corner that will make you understand why that happened and how the term prussian would come to mean something quite different over the coming centuries all
3: right mark
1: you want to
2: continue the story for us
3: Oh sure. So um, let me introduce you to the Teutonic Knights. They began as a bit of a ragtag outfit, uh, hailing from Lübeck and Bremen in Germany. From 1189 to 1191, they were tending to the sick in the city of Acre in modern-day Israel during the Third Crusade. That's nice. Yeah, pretty, pretty good. It's it stands in stark contrast to the rest of their history. Um, so this went down very well with the Pope and subsequent Popes who thought they were great and uh, they made it so that they were given you know lots of lots of money and lots of glamorous commissions and whatnot uh, and they they were they were in the big time Um, the Teutonic Knights got pulled into a war near the Baltics I, I kind of struggled with the kind of Old Prussians versus Wends versus Sambians, etc. Uh, I guess probably the old Prussians, just calling them the Old Prussians is the best way of describing them. But I mentioned a few other kind of sub tribes in here as well a little bit. But anyway, so the, the Tudans were brought in to root out all of these awful people who lived in their homes. Um, that was their main <laughs> crime. And <laughs> and and certainly not being Christian. That was that was the other big part of their crime. They were they were a bunch of mad lads. Being in their homes, not being Christian, and that was that was too much for any any sane person to bear.
1: Just a small glossary. Apparently, Wend just means Slavs, but you're a Germanic person who doesn't like Slavs. Okay. So, Slavs uh, who live near Germans. In
3: 1255, the Teutonic Knights built a new castle for this uh, grand adventure in the bay of a saltwater lagoon, which leads to the Gulf of Gdańsk, onto the Baltic Sea, and it was called Königsberg. You are saying it had a, Joe. It had a, a, another name originally from Latin. What was that?
1: Regiomontium was the uh, was the, which is pretty fancy.
3: Oh, well, it was King's Mountain anyway. So that sounds right, Latin. They named it after King Ottokar II of Bohemia. So kind of the area of the world around, kind of uh, Czech uh, Republic or Czechia as it's called, um, uh, and because he, he was the one who was funding this crusade. And in the vicinity of this castle, there was also little establishments kind of popping up, particularly Alstadt, Kniphoff, and Lubinicht, um, all of which I think became kind of modern-day neighbourhoods or r- relatively modern-day neighbourhoods of Königsberg. I don't know what they're called now. Something Russian, no doubt. And,
1: and it, it it is kind of interesting that they kept the old Prussian name. So I did read something here and there. I can't remember exactly where, but how, how the later Germans tried to sort of give them German names, and locals like, no, it's Lipnick, yeah, that's what it's called. It, it's called it, it, We're not, like, you can call it New Island or whatever you want to call it, but it's not it's called.
3: So um, uh, yeah. they have founded the castle, uh, and they barely set the thing up uh, before 1260 rolled around. And uh, they were besieged by local uh, old Prussians, uh, particularly their leader, who was uh, Hercus Monte, uh, Hercus Monte had been captured as a boy by the Teutons and educated in Teutonic City. Oh, big mistake! It's it's a classic. It's it's great. It's, it's such, a, such a dramatic kind of hero story thing. This is the origin exactly. story. Yeah, little little orphan boy. Uh, anyway, so um, the Teutons were reinforced in 1262 from Germany in the form of uh, Wilhelm of Düllich. Uh, he was a, a journeyman killi man who apparently at one point helped out bad King John of England's son, just as a reference to our our, um, Magna Carta episode. The next day, uh, Wilhelm uh, marches out to squash the the old Prussians, but lo and behold, they've all gone. Uh, They retreated from the nearby villages at the sight of him. He marched towards the local Prussian settlement of Sambia and was ambushed from the nearby forests by the locals. Wilhelm was then reinforced uh, by soldiers from from the castle of Königsberg, and he just... Absolutely laid waste to the area, recording three thousand dead, probably inflated, but you know, it's still a lot. Wilhelm was feeling pretty good about things and was, you know, I did it, mission accomplished. Uh, went home, and the Sambians and the old Prussians who lived there went right back to besieging Königsberg. Anyway, so uh, Königsberg, however because they had been reinforced, were now much better supplied, able to last for, for a lot longer, um, and they were looking for more supplies via the Pragel River. So the Sambians tried to block it off with ships, wooden bridges and a fort. But the Teutonic Knights eventually managed to burn down all these fortifications and defeated the Sambians. The Teutonic Knights then broke the siege with a final open battle, uh, injuring Hercus Monte, the guy I mentioned, and leading to a protracted period of, of just kind of mop-up battles with the locals. Just to mention about Hercus monte he he actually becomes a pretty important figure in in later centuries, actually. So he was eventually hung in 1274, but on the upside for him, they made a movie about his life called Northern Crusades, I think in the 70s, and I was reading about it, and by all accounts, he became kind of a cult figure in, I think it was Lithuania, because they were being oppressed by the Soviets. And they kind of saw this big parallel with the kind of, you know, the foreign crusading interlopers coming in and ruining all their stuff. And he became actually quite famous in the 70s, to the point that they made a kind of a Hollywood style movie about him. Cool. So the Cedonic Knights used these successes as a kind of a kicking off point, And they basically started charging up the Baltic coast, taking over what would be modern day Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia, and, and bits of bits of Russia as well. And they're, they're, building this big Teutonic state uh, all the way up the edge of the Baltics. Königsberg, as a sort of a kind of city-state, then joins the Hanseatic League in 1340, develops strong trade relations with other important cities of Europe. As the Teutonic Order strengthens its authority in the Baltic region, through successful battles against the pagan tribes, Königsberg maintained steady growth throughout. It's the kind of a hub for all of this new activity, and many Germans start coming from more mainland Germany to Königsberg to take part in the crusade, but also kind of reap the benefits of this new uh, economic activity.
1: Okay, so so and most of these knights would have been German. Yeah, I assume. they're they're largely German. So th- this is where Germanification of this bit of the Baltic starts kicking in.
3: Exactly, and and by the end of the thirteen hundreds, it's 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 pretty German indeed. Is is the point? There's kind of much less of that old Prussianness around. It's just a bit of Germany now, really. Just an honourable mention for Königsberg Cathedral here, because it's opened in 1333, but not completed for another 47 years. It'd be burned down in 1544, almost entirely. um, But then they give it a big Renaissance-flavoured facelift. And we'll mention it maybe later on, because it's going to be subject to some historical Mm. uh, messiness. It's a quite nice cathedral, but it's kind of one of the few... Remaining signs of of what Kiliningrad used to be, yeah, it's 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 quite a nice church. Uh, in my notes, I gave it uh, six fornicating popes out of ten, so you can't say fairer than that. So.
1: <laughs> and that's on the the island
3: in the middle of the river. Yeah, sure, isn't it? I think the kind of yeah, there is a central island in the middle of the city. We
1: maybe should mention that
2: now. Actually, that like the shape of the city is is pretty weird. There's a central island, kind of that is that sort of bisects a river. Yeah, um, well,
1: there's kind of two rivers. see the, the old and the new Pragel kind of coming in from. Right, the, the, the river kind of splits occasionally and joins back together. So you've got two two yeah. flows of river coming. The main island in the middle is the Kniepoff. And then north of that, you've got the main bit of the city. And south of that, you've got more city. And then east of that, on a separate island, you've got another bit of city. So it's kind of quite a complex place. Yeah, particularly at this point in time when,
2: you know... You don't necessarily have a huge abundance of bridges. To, to I mean, I guess that in a in a way, it's a it's a perfect spot for like a you know Order of Teutonic Knights, for example, to defend because you have got yeah. rivers on all sides. But
1: but actually, the the the, the castle was north of all the rivers, uh, up by a pond. Fair so enough. the 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 castle was on a, on a hill was its main appeal. Mm. But it's a very yeah. It's, as we'll come back to the bridges uh, later. We, wa- we will, yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, yeah.
3: And just, just to mention about the church, and this is a bit of foreshadowing as well, Konigsberg's most famous son would be entombed there eventually, uh, and his tomb would miraculously be spared in the, uh, in, in World War Two. But uh, I'm not going to mention who that is yet, because we haven't talked about him yet.
1: Mm. Yeah, you can't bring it up yet. <laughs> uh, so, <laughs> all right, I, I,
3: can't, I can't work with the other part Sorry. of that name. So in the early 1400s, there was some perturbing up in this Konigsberging um, and there was a wave of trouble hitting the area. There's a small region near Königsberg called uh, Samogitia, and it had been promised to the Teutonic Knights uh, by Lithuania, who didn't follow through, which kicked off an almighty run of battles and proliferating wars. Before too long, there was kind of two major sides, the Teutonic Knights on one side versus uh, Poland and Lithuania on the other. This series of battles culminated in something that was apparently, I'd never heard of it, but apparently we've seen it as one of the greatest battles of the Middle Ages, uh, the Battle of Grunwald. Now, I'll, I'll grant you, it, it happened just outside of um, the uh, modern-day borders of what is Kaliningrad, but it, it, it was certainly in the vicinity. It definitely impacted the area. So it, just to give you an idea of the scale of this thing, so on one side you have the, the Tatars who were commanded by a former Khan of the Golden Horde, and also Bohemian warriors up from from I the, guess the, you know,
1: they're from Crimea, aren't they, the Tatars?
3: The Tatars, yeah, and and but other areas of Russia as well. Nice. But uh, they're they're also incredible. So like this this is a, a super battle, and and then you've got Jan Zizka uh, with the Poles, and on the other side you had the uh, the head of the Teutonic Order who was Ulrich van Yungingen. Yungingin, and he led a force of knights. Uh, so this 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 battle was was enormous. Um, and I'm not going to go into the ins and outs of it because you can read that elsewhere. But um, it, it ended very dramatically and it ended with um, him keeping a, a, a big group of soldiers in reserve. And right at the end of the battle, he did a huge charge at the heart of the Poles to try to kill the Polish king who was in the battle. Oh my. Um, but uh, he himself was killed in the attempt. The charge failed and the Teutonic Order's army was absolutely squashed like a rotten Prussian peach. And the uh, the knights fled to nearby uh, woods and marshes, retreating anywhere they could, uh, including to some local villages. And apparently, some of the local villagers actually killed more of the knights than the, uh, than the than the Poles and the Tatars did. They 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 kind of massacred them in their sleep as they tried to Oof. kind of seek refuge. Um, and this all resulted in the the Peace of Thorn okay. in fourteen eleven, which was a really punitive peace. Um, And, uh, yeah, things went from bad to worse for the Teutonic Order. They continued to incur defeats from this Polish-Lithuanian super army. um, But Konigsberg remained under the Order's control during the whole war. They never lost it. Mm. Uh, And in 1454, several cities of Western Prussia rebelled, and the Grand Master of the Order fled the capital, which at that time was Marienburg, and he moved to Konigsberg. So it's now becoming... The center of, hmm. of the Chichóna quarter, absolutely.
1: It must have been quite a quite a fortress. Like it, it does seem to, and it had this. This will be a pattern later. People fleeing there when everything else fails.
3: I, I don't know if it necessarily has that much natural fortification, but I think what what it generally is, it's normally behind so much other land that it's a fallback position. Mm. So it's you, you never just have Königsberg you've got Königsberg and then lands for however many kind of hundreds of miles beyond it. If you've lost Königsberg you've lost everything frankly. So yeah. so you know that that's that's kind of it as 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 we'll see as we go on. Anyway, they make uh, Königsberg the new capital of the Teutonic Order and in 1525 the Grand Master of the Teutonic Order converts to Protestantism and he forms the Duchy of Prussia. Uh, the city Sorry. flourishes what? <laughs> What? You can't yeah. do that. Yeah, he just makes it a duchy. He, you're, you're, he makes you're himself a you're duke, the grandmaster of a crusader, like. And now he's a country. He's a, he's a duke. That's like a
1: cardinal a, a, becoming a Protestant. Yeah.
3: yeah. Anyway, just just a flag that this was this was one of the good good centuries for for Königsberg. City flourishes through commerce and stability. Uh, they found the university, and it becomes a center for Protestant studies. And the city is doing very well for itself. Thank you very much.
2: All right. Let's take a quick break.
3: For the break, uh, we're going to be hearing from a guy called Otto Nicolai, uh, who was born in 1810 and died in 1849. Uh, He became a musician to the Prussian embassy in Rome. uh, And when Verdi declined the libretto of Il Prescrito by the proprietors of La Scala in Milan... We all remember that. Well, he he, he turned down a gig, basically. Verdi turned down a (laughs) sweet-ass gig in La Scala in Milan, and it was offered to this lad, Nicolai. Yeah, and apparently Nicolai refused a, a, a gig elsewhere uh and that went to Verdi so he, he he was a, a big contemporary of Verdi's and they were kind of back and forth um and uh yeah he was offered a position vacated by Felix Mendelssohn of uh chapel chapel master I guess a chapel uh, at the Berlin Cathedral so a a big a big deal anyway
1: that seems like an appropriate one to put here as the the the, the you know grand master of the Teutonic orders leaves Rome it's a, a Königsberg composer who went to Rome. You know, that's a tenuous link that we'll take. I'll take that's it. True,
2: yeah. Tenuous enough for me. Back after this. Okay, so the next part is a little bit convoluted, but bear with us, we'll straighten it out in just a sec. So in 1568, Duke Albert was succeeded by his son named Albert Frederick, who is referred to in numerous accounts as feeble-minded. Albert Frederick soon began to show signs of quote-unquote mental disorder. And as a result, the regency was taken over by his cousin, a guy called George Frederick, who also served as the elector of Brandenburg. Lucky guy. However, he promptly dies in 1603, leaving the job vacant once more. The Polish king steps into the breach and appoints another elector of Brandenburg, Joachim Frederick, as regent in 1605 and permits his son, a guy called John Sigismund, to succeed him, which he does in 1611. A few years later, Duke Albert Frederick's line in Prussia is extinguished and as a result, control of the duchy passes to John Sigismund, who we just mentioned. He's then named Duke of Prussia. The two branches of the Hohenzollern dynasty were therefore united. Therefore, from that time, the electors of Brandenburg become the rulers of this mishmash of a country that will come to be known as Brandenburg-Prussia. Now, if you know your German geography, you'll know that Brandenburg is where Berlin is. The Brandenburg Gate, etc. Yes. Yes. And if you know anything about European geography, uh, Kaliningrad and Berlin ain't um, close to one another. <laughs> um so, and this is
1: where the confusion arises. Yeah,
2: exactly. So this is what we were talking about with Prussia earlier. So we now have this this sort of like um, Frankenstein country of Brandenburg, Prussia, uh, part of which is is about, you know, 500 odd miles away from uh, Berlin, which is the center of power in Brandenburg, Prussia.
1: Um, and the electors were important parts of the Holy Roman Empire. So they got to choose the emperor. So electors mm. were a big deal. But interestingly, Prussia is not part of the Holy Roman Empire. Even though Brandenburg, yeah, Prussia the Prussia bit of Brandenburg Prussia belongs to an elector, but is outside yes. the empire, which is useful. The result
2: was a sprawling, disconnected country known as Brandenburg Prussia, that was in pretty poor shape to defend itself during a series of upcoming European conflicts. Just a little. I mean, there's a map here in the in the notes which I've 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 yeah. taken from Wikipedia, which is Brandenburg Prussia within and outside the Holy Roman Empire. Grotesque. Just, it just looks like ink splotches on the map like there's bits of it all over the place it's kind of ridiculous but um so we're going to try to focus on the the prussia bit and the konigsberg bit um but you know because the ruling family uh is the same for all these different bits of geography then
3: you know they're obviously going to play a role some of it's in modern day holland i think
2: Mm. (laughs) exactly so uh, the Duchy of Prussia, as you mentioned Joe, was very important to the Hohenzollern family because it w- wasn't part of the, the Empire and that was thus much easier uh, to control like or to exert their control over. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, so shortly after inheriting the territory, the 30 Years' War breaks out. Uh, oh, and although no. it doesn't initially affect konigsberg, uh, within about a year of that conflict starting uh, John Smund dies. Uh, Passes the territory to his son, George William or Georg Wilhelm in 1619 and the three decades of war. And we're not going to go into uh, I'm not going to go into the 30 years war because it's a crazily complicated. uh, It's a crazily complicated war uh, that ranged all over Europe, uh, involved a huge amount of different parties. Uh, so we're just gonna to try to talk about how it how it impacted Kon- Konigsberg. As I mentioned, the the Brandenburg Prussia was very difficult to defend and control. Uh and so the and the territory itself switched sides uh three times oh, okay. uh, within what, the space the of the sides? thirty years.
1: Should I even ask is don't are? ask. They're basically the Protestants sides, and Catholics, Joe. Basically sides. Protestants oh, and Catholics. Okay. That's something I can understand. Yeah. <laughs>
2: So the the true uh, army swept the land back and forth, killing, burning, uh, seizing men, and taking food supplies. And upwards of half of the population of uh, Brandenburg Prussia was either killed or moved from their homes, or you know had to had to wow. had to flee their homes. In this conflict, the the Thirty Years' War is generally seen as as part of a series of larger European-wide struggles today where the basic issue remained the struggle for dominance between the Austro-Spanish Habsburgs and the French Bourbons, i.e. Catholics versus Protestants. So when the Imperial and then Swedish armies overran Brandenburg during the war, the Hohenzollern courts fled to Konigsberg. So uh, get out of there and get go east. I mean, obviously. You know. uh, Konigsberg. <laughs> in 1626, coincidentally, the, the city was fortified with walls be- being built around it for the first time. For the first time. Hmm. Uh, Uh, Georg Wilhelm, or George William, lived out the rest of his days in Konigsberg, then dying there in 1640 and leaving control of the duchy to his son, Frederick William, uh, or Friedrich Wilhelm, uh, who wanted to do more than just, uh, you know, hold up inside the castle and wait for the war to end. Um, Frederick William had a bit of an independent streak uh, and was not particularly happy with having to answer to all these noble families all the time um, and wanted to rule within his own right. And he knew that military strength was the key to uh, getting and keeping power. So I, I don't know about you guys, but the one thing that I, I sort of knew uh, about Prussia or that, I, you know, I was familiar with uh, in terms of Prussia was before I started researching this episode, at least was, you know, Prussia equals big military. Uh, that's that's about as much, you know, mm-hmm. that, that was that that was, you know, the thing that I associated Prussia with and, in and my, in my efficient
1: mind. bureaucracy. But that comes true, true.
2: Uh, so this guy is kind of where that tradition comes from, Frederick William. William. Uh, so he was a pretty astute military tactician, uh, or depending on your point of view, completely treacherous. Um, so in in 1656, uh, during early engagements of the Second Northern War, uh, during which the belligerents were basically Sweden and Poland, uh, he he negotiated the Treaty of Konigsberg to expand his lands in return for allying with the Swedes. Uh, This treaty elevated him from a Swedish vassal to a full sovereign within the Duchy of Prussia. Hmm. Uh, And after fighting alongside the Swedish army, he saw that the tide was going against them and signaled his willingness to change sides if the Polish king would grant him similar concessions. (laughs) So he basically changed sides, uh, negotiated the the Treaty of Wilhau in uh, 1657... Uh, securing the release of Prussia from Polish sovereignty uh, in return for an, an alliance with Poland, uh, and the 1660 mm. Treaty of uh, Oliva uh, confirmed Prussian independence from both Poland and Sweden. So he basically played both sides against one another uh, and expanded That's his amazing. own power in the process.
1: Yes, because he's not a king of anywhere; he's a duke and an elector mm. and a margrave. Exactly.
2: He he's supposed place. to be answering to all these all these. You know, kings in How in nice. Sweden and in Poland who technically oversee his lands, but uh, he's he's managed to free himself from those ties by the end of this conflict. Um and around the same time, uh, for some reason, he increases the the defense around his city, uh, mm. an expansion which included the uh, the the Brandenburg Gate, which uh, you know is not the one in Berlin and still stands in the south of the city today. Okay. Um, so that's, that's one of the few pieces, we'll, we'll talk about that later, but that's one of the few pieces of uh, Prussian architecture that still exists in modern-day uh, Kaliningrad. In 1661, some wealthy landowners r- rose up against his rule, and it did not go well. Frederick William put them down and further consolidated his rule of the duchy and the city. The Prussian estates then swore fealty to him uh, in 1663. So he now looked outside of his own walls to expand his territory. Uh, the consolidation of of Brandenburg Prussia had left a, a chunk of land uh, along the Baltic coast, including the city of Gdansk, uh, isolated. So th- and this this makes it even more confusing. This this area was was known as Royal Prussia, mm, okay. uh, It's a different Prussia, uh, okay. and was controlled by Poland. So you've got like Prussia in the east and then you got Royal Prussia and then you got Brandenburg in the west you know Prussia light uh, Prussia yeah, which is joined to the Prussia that we're talking about Uh, so there's a little pocket called um, Royal Prussia in the middle so Brandenburg Prussia uh, began to move away from Polish influence and towards German influence which left Royal Prussia as this kind of you know island of of Polish influence in the middle of, of Brandenburg Prussia I
1: mean you look at it on a map you want it to link up and I'm sure if you were the duke of that place, you would feel that even more strongly than exactly. a, an OCD map reader.
2: Exactly. I mean, this is the kind of thing that doesn't really exist anymore. And I mean, we have talked a couple of times about exclaves and stuff. Well,
1: except Kaliningrad. <laughs> but
2: yeah, this is true. Kaliningrad is one of those. I mean, yeah,
1: it's definitely it's completely an exclave. It is, yeah, 100%. It's completely unconnected to Russia. Yeah.
2: So this Royal Prussia is an exclave within Brandenburg, Prussia, then, I guess, uh, at this time. So uh, that created a bit of tension. Um, Konigsberg itself remained a center of Lutheran resistance to Calvinism uh, within Brandenburg, Prussia, so the city itself. Uh, And uh, Frederick William forced the city to accept Calvinist citizens and property holders in 1668. Hmm. Uh, In 1700, the Austrian emperor Leopold I requests Frederick's assistance in the War of Spanish Succession and offers him a significant new title for doing so uh, mm. as there are no German kings within the Holy Roman Empire apart from the Habsburg's emperor's own kingdom of Bohemia uh, and using the the legal technicality that Prussia is outside the empire Leopold allows Frederick to call himself a king in Prussia not technically the king of Prussia although that title will be allowed from 1740 but initially uh, when he when he dangles this carrot he, he tells him he can he can call himself a, the king in
1: Prussia Um, Cool. So he gets promotion. Basically, yes. But this is the thing, like the Austrian emperors were still kind of the Holy Roman emperors. They just didn't have as much control as they used to Mm -hmm. of the non-Austrian bits of the the right. Exactly.
2: And as we mentioned, you know, this part was floating outside of the Holy Roman Empire and therefore they weren't as concerned with how it was ruled and governed, I guess. Okay. In Konigsberg Castle on the 18th of January, 1701, Frederick William's son, Elector Frederick III, became Frederick I, king in Prussia. So Prussia is now a kingdom in its own right, and Konigsberg therefore becomes the capital of this new province of East Prussia within the kingdom of Prussia.
3: Stay with me. Yeah. (laughs) So the Prussia is double Prussia, but on a Tuesday it's triple Prussia. Yeah,
2: exactly. Uh, So... Frederick I, he establishes a system of taxation, removing the landowner's uh, main source of power and influence uh, and spends a large slice uh, of the resulting revenue on, you might have guessed it, the army. Right. Uh, So he's just going to keep bulking up the military side of this, uh, you know, his new kingdom. His new system uh, of maintaining a large army made it possible to maintain a highly trained citizen military without necessarily damaging the economy. So half the army was made up of foreign mercenaries, and the other half was a population of peasants from Brandenburg and Prussia who trained for two months out of the year in rotation. So yeah, basically they were a military service. Yeah, essentially they would work their fields and have to serve for two months of every year. This combination of an absolute monarch with a large and efficient army became very characteristic of Prussia and the Prussia that we would associate with uh, you know, pre-World War I. When Frederick William I took the throne, the Prussian army amounted to around 80,000 men, which is around 4% of the population at the time. So, you know, by by pretty much any standard, like 4% of the population is massive. But he, he did face some challenges early on in his reign. Uh, the most significant being a plague which spread in the wake of the Great Northern War. Okay. So it arrived in the city in 1709. Fight that
1: with your army, Frederick. Mm.
2: It arrived in the city around in in 1709 and the provincial government immediately fled the city. Uh, And the city walls were were then manned by the military. Uh, You had medical personnel uh, dressed in black. The plague was put down to bad air. Um, But obviously there there was very little understanding of exactly what caused it. And at first, the city authorities downplayed the seriousness of the plague, uh, which reached a peak in early October and then declined. And then they began to see numbers rising again in November uh, and had to take it a lot more seriously and suddenly essentially implemented a a citywide lockdown, um, sealing the city off completely from the surrounding countryside on the 15th of November until late December 1709. Uh, and when the plague had fully retreated from Co- Konigsberg by mid-1710, when more than uh, 9,500 t- townspeople had died, which was about a quarter of the population. Oh. Yeah. That's quite bad. Yep. Uh, in 1724, then, the three towns, which you mentioned earlier, Joe, were incorporated mm. into Konigsberg. This is where we get the the seven bridges of Konigsberg problem, which I think you would probably be better speaking to than me, Joe.
1: There was this kind of mathematical thought experiment presented of, of you know, the, the, the seven bridges of Königsberg that connect all of these islands to each other and to the mainland on the two different sides. And people kind of wondered, is there a way I can wander around and see the sites of Königsberg crossing every bridge once, but only crossing every bridge once? Yeah. So you have to use all of the bridges and you have to use all of them once. Is that possible?
2: It's almost like a like a riddle, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. It was a it
1: was a puzzle, a kind of a logical after puzzle. Dinner. It was a fun thing for people um, to try, you know. Yeah. And it suggests that people kind of knew Koenigsberg. Like maybe you know, you you might do a puzzle like this today about like Paris or New York or something. Well, you there's know, the Dublin one kind of
3: trying to get get across Dublin without passing a pub. The same that's group true. Twice, yeah. That
1: yeah. that's easy. <laughs> I, I don't know who set the problem, but I think it was the 1700s, early 1700s. This was presented and mathematicians thought about it and didn't really have a firm solution until a plucky mathematician, Leonard Euler, um, in 1736, proposed a solution. And in doing so, actually kind of invented uh, some areas of mathematics, which is always a fun way to, you know, solve a problem. It's like, I invented a new class of maths in order to do this. His f- solution laid the foundation of what's called graph theory, Uh, and also topology, like the idea of thinking of shapes as kind of abstract mathematical concepts. He proved that it was impossible to define a route between four landmasses over the seven bridges while crossing each bridge only once because each of the islands had three bridges. And so he kind of said this was a general point that if you have a series of nodes connected by lines, you can't make this work if there's an uneven number of lines coming out of the nodes. Mm. And if you draw this as a simplified diagram of points and lines, it becomes pretty clear in a way that a map of Königsberg was less convenient for thinking it through. And so it's a way to strip down a problem like this into the bare components. Mm. And yeah, his recognition that the key information was the number of bridges and the list of their endpoints rather than their actual positions presaged the development of topology, which is an important part of maths today, I understand. Uh, And the difference between the actual layout and the graph schematic is a good example of the idea that topology is not concerned with the rigid shape of objects. So Mm. there you go. Two bridges from this time, of the seven bridges, were actually destroyed. uh, Bridge spoiler.
3: We'll probably talk about that later. Spoilers on the bridge there. Yeah.
1: But because of the particular bridges which were destroyed, it's still impossible. Um, (laughs) We can all rest assured you can't do it. Great. You just can't, can't do it, do it. yeah. If they destroyed different bridges, it might have become possible.
3: Uh, even if they
2: destroy all of them, it's still
3: impossible. Was that a solution, to destroy several bridges? See, what you need to do is burn several yeah. of the bridges down. Anyway. <laughs> Matt, yeah, that
1: wasn't, the, the question was a puzzle. What
3: hired. you need to
2: do is get a rowboat, that's what you need to do. The
1: doctor was his mother.
2: Anyway.
3: Ah, that's the bridge. <laughs>
2: ah, yeah. Anyway. In 1740, uh, Frederick I, King of Prussia, bequeathed to his son, Frederick II, a thriving economy, a large cash surplus, and Europe's best-trained army, as well as a city with seven bridges that you can't cross once. That was nice. He became known, Frederick II, as Frederick the Great, uh, and uses these uh, numerous advantages to increase Prussian influence, both in Germany and in Europe. Uh, Between 1740 and 1745, he wins a series of military victories, including a swift attack to occupy the Habsburg territory of Silesia in the immediate aftermath of the sudden and unexpected death of Charles Fifteenth, the king of Austria. So basically, like while the Habsburgs are all at sea, uh, when Charles Fifteenth dies, uh, Frederick the Great or Frederick II just swoops on in there and is like, mine, I'm taking this. And uh, there's not a whole lot that the Habsburgs can do about it. In 1756, then, we have the start of the Seven Years' War.
1: An improvement on the 30 years war.
2: An improvement on the 30 years war, uh, indeed. But another extremely complicated conflict, which we're not going to uh, parse now. But uh, essentially, the conflict arose from issues left unresolved by the War of Austrian Succession. Uh, and Prussia in this war was seeking greater dominance in Europe. Curiously, Winston Churchill would later call this conflict the First World War. Uh, because it did actually spread out to be essentially a, a global conflict. I think we touched on it in in our Cuba episode, if I'm not mistaken. Hmm. Because the Spanish Empire was 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 definitely involved. Um, well, they, but...
1: they were connected to Austria, weren't they?
2: Exactly, exactly. Uh, the Prussian forces were already so overwhelmed fighting against Austrian and French forces near Brandenburg that Frederick the Great uh, could not afford to start a campaign against the Russians to liberate Königsberg when they invaded the city in 1758. Oh, no. So basically, Konigsberg was taken over by the Russians, which would foreshadow uh, modern day, uh, I guess. There were five imperial Russian uh, general governors who administered the city during the course of the war from 1758 to 1762. But at least based on what I read, the brief Russian occupation of the city was not necessarily as unpleasant as you might imagine. Uh, The Russians brought new trade and business opportunities to the city, and they did not necessarily hinder the freedom of thought and education of the citizens. That's nice. And then, under the terms of the Treaty of St. Petersburg, signed in May 1762, Russia exited the Seven Years' War and the Russian army abandoned eastern Prussia and the city reverted to Prussian control. So uh, shall we take another quick break here and then we'll get on to um, the rest of the, the 1700s. So the piece of music that you just heard uh, was from a composer named uh, Pavel Pabst, who was born Christian Georg Powell Pabst in 1854 in Königsberg. Uh, later became a, a very famous uh, composer in Russia and accepted an invitation from Nikolai Rubinstein to teach at the Moscow Imperial Conservatory. Uh, Joe, I believe you're going to tell us about um someone that we neglected to talk about in the last section. Uh, one of Königsberg's or Kaliningrad's most famous sons,
1: arguably the Königsberg's most famous son. You know, so, so, Indeed. so intricately entwined with Königsberg that he he said have never left the the confines of the city, or at least the the mm. the, the general region around it. And um, I mean, this man bridges the section you just talked about, and and he dies in the section I'm covering. So this this is as good as Point as any to talk about him. This is Im- Immanuel Kant, who um, he was born in Königsberg in 1724 1720- and he studied at the university in the city, the Albertina, as it was called. Um, and the theories he developed there would become the bedrock of Western philosophy, arguably. He was kind of a, a central thinker. Of the the German Enlightenment and the Enlightenment in Europe more more generally, mm. the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy says that he he synthesised early modern rationalism and empiricism, which is great. Um, <laughs> being an expert on those topics, <laughs> that's up so, to do. I've uh, heard yep. he continues to a significant influence in loads of uh, areas of modern philosophy, including aesthetics, epistemology, and ethics, and stuff that you know people who like philosophy are really big into. Uh, but the fundamental ideas of the critical philosophy which is I think what it is, one of the main texts was called was that hu- is human autonomy and he argues that human understanding is the source of the general laws of nature and the structure of all our experiences and that you know belief in God comes from that not the other way around all that those kind of ideas so very enlightenment ideas he was the son of pious harness makers um, I thought that was and... the guy's
3: name pious harness maker <laughs> no no just they were very
1: very into pietist uh, Lutheranism can't okay. uh, less so, but uh he he respected their their faith and the, the they their hard working ethic and what i what I loved was I didn't love it, it was, it's awful uh, very precarious he had a very precarious existence. He spent fifteen years working in the University of Königsberg, um as an unsalaried lecturer, which was a thing at the time, like you had to be pretty well off in order to afford to be a lecturer because you basically worked for tips you know you you the students paid you at the end of the lecture if they liked the Let's lecture. Go.
3: Le- the modern ways of working, wow. lecturers love the flexibility of that new situation. <laughs> <laughs> There's some great apps which will just match up students with lecturers. Yeah. Very organic, better value. Everybody wins. Mm.
1: Yeah. Um. Yep. So he did 15 years of that before eventually being appointed a chair. And he, like, he turned down appointments in, in various other German cities. He, he had no interest in leaving Königsberg, which I think is remarkable. And he lived a simple and a steer life, this, despite his fame. Uh, and he was very famous around the world. Uh, and when he died in 1804, they built a mausoleum to him. And his last words, uh, you know, he, he was in poor health for quite a while. He died, I think, 81, uh, uttering, Es ist gut, as his last words. Is, it is good. Just like cool beans? As that yeah. is yeah, Or like, this, this is fine. It's all good. Um, so Professor Eaton had a few things to say about how he's viewed in modern Kaliningrad, in, in, in the Russian city. He's still... Uh, Embrace So maybe we'll put in what she mentioned about him here before moving on with the more chronological history. Uh,
4: Kant's tomb is at the very center of the city, uh, had already been placed there when it was the old town city center. And today it is sort of the symbolic heart of the city, if not the actual city center. And the Russians took great care to rebuild that mausoleum. There was an anecdote um, after the war that during the bombing, um, Kant's tomb cracked open, and indeed it did. There are all kinds of photos, and you can, you can see the crack in the tomb, um, and apparently you could peek in and see Kant's bones inside. I don't know if that's apocryphal, but that's the, how the story goes. There are photos of Soviet soldiers having scrawled all kinds of graffiti, on Kant's tomb as they marched to Berlin. This was not a sort of denigration of Kant, but this was just a customary way to say, we were here, you know, I was here. And some of the inscriptions at the time in 45, 46, 47 said, you know, it's it's me, we're on our way to Berlin, something like that, but then one said, now you know that the world is material. And so this was a communist rebuttal to idealist philosophy. Uh, Another inscription that you can see in the photos said, Did you ever think that the Russian Yvonne was going to be standing on your grave? And I just find those two things so delightful. All of that graffiti is cleaned up now and is a very well restored um, mausoleum. Um, The university today has been renamed after Kant, although there's been some conflict over that. And so today Kaliningraders celebrate Kant as their own, but there's some kind of political struggle, very low grade, about... Uh, other figures that perhaps they should celebrate a little bit more loudly.
1: So I I don't know if we've really delved into it, but the the city was really cosmopolitan. Um, like we talked about Poland and and the you know the the Polish corridor and, and that kind of thing. Um, but this was a a city that wasn't just German. It had plenty of Lithuanian influence. Um, it was I think the first Lithuanian books were published in the university. Uh, right. in the 15th 1600s um it was a center of polish lutheranism so like it was called kroliewicz i think which means king mountain you know again quite quite literal mm-hmm. in polish and it had a big polish population polish intellectuals played a role in setting up the university and there was a significant jewish population too and at this point in our in our story the kind of mid-1700s, Jewish students were being permitted to study at the university in Königsberg. So this was a cosmopolitan place, it wasn't very parochial, it was it was a melting pot of ideas. Uh, in 1753, King Friedrich allowed the first civic synagogue to be built there. I think there was a Jewish community there since the 1500s, but this marked a step in growing tolerance. And then in 1772, there was a, an event that would, I suppose, it's just a one in a series of ongoing jugglings of territory trying to solve this problem of East Prussia and Brandenburg being the same kingdom.
3: Okay. Um, mm.
1: So this is what's called the First Partition of Poland, uh, where what we would consider Poland now was, was split up in such a way between the Austrians and the Russians and the, the Prussians. The, nor- the northern seaboard of, of modern-day Poland, the, the bit connecting... But that had been
2: Royal Prussia, correct?
1: Yes, it will, it, be, it becomes Ro- Royal Prussia again at this point, but as part of the Prussian state. Hmm. Uh, so Royal Prussia had been part been subject to Poland. So now Prussia is a contiguous landmass, which is, is nice for them. Around this time, around 1800s, so at the turn of the, the 19th century, the, the city's eight kilometers in circumference with 60,000 residents. It's one of the most populous German cities. Okay. But things were changing across Europe. I don't know if you know what was going on around the early 1800s, but uh, have you heard... <laughs>
2: there was some, some French guy going around yeah, making a lot of have noise. You, have you heard right. of
1: Napoleon Bonaparte? <laughs> He's a kind of a minor yeah. historical figure. He, in 1806, defeated Prussia uh, in the War of the Fourth Coalition. So he, he took Berlin, that's important, and King Friedrich Wilhelm III, who was the sitting uh, Prussian king, fled to Königsberg with his court. Oh, okay. So this was a, a defensible position and far away from Berlin. Very far away, Far yeah. away from where Napoleon was at at that point. He would follow. Um, and <laughs> I believe during this time he set up, what was it called? The the Immediate Commission, which was a kind of a general sort of, how do we run a country now? We have to change everything.
3: Okay.
1: Uh, commission, which which I'll come back to. They, they propose lots of dramatic changes which you know are what you need to do when your your country's being defeated by by the French Empire. Russia was defeated by France at the Battle of Friedland, which uh, is a place that's still in the Kaliningrad the Kaliningrad Oblast today. So this is somewhere quite near Königsberg, uh, where where Russia was defeated by Napoleon's armies. That's Zaris, going to be unsettling. And um, the king then fled to Melma, which is in is now in Lithuania for a while. Basically, it was all. Napoleon was very much in the ascendancy uh, across Europe and uh, both the kings of Prussia and the Tsar of Russia would sign treaties at Tilsit uh, but Prussia were treated very badly much worse than had been anticipated to the extent that Friedrich Wilhelm would lose about half of his kingdom
3: Was, was there a reason? Was it Napoleon didn't like the Prussians?
1: Just or? Friedrich Wilhelm III seems to have been a very disinterested king like, I don't get the impression he was very good Oh okay, alright or ambitious so he just kind of Frederick don't Friedrich the third
3: like, not frederick the really the great. really good yeah
1: so prussia lost the kingdom of westphalia it lost the duchy of warsaw and it lost the free city of danzig which were some of its valuable possessions um they'd all become vassal states of the french empire and a lot of the good agricultural land in the west was just gone so from about 10 million inhabitants prussia went to having 4.5 million
3: inhabitants uh, that's, overnight. That's much smaller wow. number.
1: Yeah. Um, the city was a site of political resistance to Napoleon, so there were lots of liberal cultural organizations set up there, like the, the so-called League of Virtue, which was founded by some university professors, <laughs> and sort of German nationalistic associations and Ugh. liberal, political, like, we need to change how we do politics. This whole absolute despotism, maybe not working out great for us as citizens. Okay. Under French subjugation, Despite the king not being super enthusiastic about reform, uh, Prussian statesmen sort of took it on themselves to, to uh, restructure how Prussia worked. So Baron von Stein is one of the most famous proponents of this. They were inspired by people like Kant and other Enlightenment philosophers. They thought about things like having self-governing cities, having local militias, emancipating the Jews, uh, economic and military reforms to be more efficient and more um, sustainable. And they really paved the way for both a strengthened and more liberal Prussia and ultimately German unification under Prussia. Oh, wow. Okay. But, but a key plank... So this all happened in the crucible of, like, Napoleonic mm. embarrassment and, and, and repression that all these mm. thinkers started saying, you know, we can't just keep going like we're going. A key plank of these reforms was the abolition of serfdom in 1807 by the October Edict. And this was actually written by a local Königsberg educated... Uh, by, he was educated by Kant, who was a family friend and he was from this region of East Prussia, Theodor von Schoen. So he was a key minister in various Russian governments, and he, he wrote the edict um, abolishing serfdom, so well,
3: well, good work. That not a bit late for abolishing serfdom? No. I, I think the Russians did in like 1880 or 1890 or something, which yeah, is no, super late, but it seems late to be having serfs. You know?
1: European history is is something we should look at more. It's not quite as... Uh, it's not oh, quite no. as rosy as um, as you might think. Yeah, the, if
2: you haven't learned that yet, Joe. I think any listener of this podcast yeah. would, would realize European oh, history is, is is bleak as pretty much anywhere else.
1: Yeah. So in 1812, uh, there was more um, more Napoleonic shenanigans. The, uh, the Treaty of Paris created a Franco-Prussian Alliance, okay, obliging Prussia to join with Napoleon in his invasion of Russia, which you've probably oh, no. heard of. Oh you, god you know, no! Famously, the invasion of, Prussia, of Russia went really well.
2: Exactly, as it always does.
1: This was very unpopular with most Prussians, for obvious reasons, and many Prussian soldiers wanted to change sides. Some of them did just that.
3: Should we say what happened with it? Because people, in case people don't know.
1: know, Spoiler, (laughs) invading Russia, don't do it. Napoleon couldn't do it, Hitler couldn't do it. I
3: I think the number is, they had an army of 300,000, they came away with 30,000.
1: So, being more specific to, to our region of interest, uh, troops under General Ludwig von York, spelled Y O R C K, he changed his spelling to make him sound more British, which is apparently a, <laughs> a stylish thing to do at the time. Oh, God. He was basically abandoned by the French Marshal Jacques MacDonald. Did he also? Did he do the same no, thing? Yeah? No, I, I, think so. he was, I
3: will be Scottish.
1: I think he was of yeah. a Stuart Jacobite stock and they'd left. England after that.
3: It's think, weird that the guy who wanted to sound English didn't just drop the Vaughn. He could have just dropped yeah. the von. He <laughs> was, was right there.
1: Yeah. Uh, so Jacques MacDonald took his troops away and the, the Prussians were surrounded by the Russian forces at Taurogen. The Russian force was also commanded by a German and they agreed to come to an armistice agreement. So, you know, the, the, the quotation I found was that they neutralized the Prussian forces without the consent of their king. So they just didn't bother asking the king uh, and decided we want to we want to surrender um thanks as negotiations were ongoing major wilhelm henkel von donnersmark who was a native of königsberg was sent to the city to inform the prussian general there about what they'd done and then he was sent on to berlin prussians generally thought this was great but the the royal court had to kind of pretend that they were very disappointed because they're you know they were allies with France, uh, and they sent a messenger to Commander York to to court martial him, but the Russians wouldn't let the messenger send him the letter, which I thought was kind of fun. <laughs> you can't if we haven't seen it; it's not illegal. Yeah. A few months later, Prussia would officially switch sides, join the Allies in a, a treaty at Callists, and ultimately Napoleon uh, would be defeated at Leipzig and Waterloo, which were some of the key battles. Leipzig is called like the Battle of the Nations, which is quite quite cool. A key point here is that Prussia now crystallized the idea of sort of um German national resistance to France. You know, that 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 Waterloo and so on were kind of a, a war of national resistance, while Saxony and Bavaria stayed on side with Napoleon. Oh. So when it comes to like who will lead German Germany and the Germans in a post Napoleon world, Prussia's looking
3: pretty good. Who's the most German bit of Germany?
1: Mm. Yeah. The most anti-French anyway, and if, if there's, there's nothing more German than being anti-French.
2: Uh, de- yeah, defining your national character as opposed to this national character. So in
1: the 1815 Congress of Vienna, uh, Prussia came into control of Cologne, the Ruhr region, which is the industrial heartland of Germany. And this really pulled Prussia's interest westwards. So amber-rich East Prussia, maybe a little less exciting now that you have the industrial heartland and all the chemical industries and the, the coal and the steel. Mm. In 1824 to 78, East and West Prussia were merged into a united province of Prussia, with Königsberg as the capital. Statesman Theodor von Schoon from earlier, who, who freed the serfs, he was the governor of the province for about half of that time. He uh, was a supporter of the Lithuanian language and the education system, as well as Polish seminars at the university. So again, cosmopolitan egalitarian, inclusive. He's remembered as a model of the Königsberg Enlightenment, by contrast with Berlin's neo-absolutism. So uh, the the Berlin wanted to go back to the old ways, and that wasn't where the future lay. When Friedrich Wilhelm IV came to the throne in 1840, um, von Schoen would retire soon after, because he was too at odds with the new king, and he just couldn't continue to hide his true feelings. Uh, but he was described as a poetic statesman by his friend, the philosopher Rosencrantz. You know, he's remembered well. In 1848, I won't go into this, but revolution swept Europe. Um, this included Prussia. A lot of it had to do with famines and the treatment of labourers and socialism is in there. It's, there were revolutions for all kinds of reasons all at the same time. But in the Frankfurt Parliament, which was assembled by thinkers and intellectuals across the German states, they tried to offer the uh, the Prussian king the title of emperor, and he would not accept the crown from the gutter. I don't worry, king of the peasants. Yeah, from 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 this you know ad hoc parliament that had assembled itself with no kind of fair uh, enough, no really. right to assemble. So- <laughs> um, yeah, he, and also like there was always this view that like the German emperor was the Holy Roman Emperor, which was the Austrian Habsburg emperor, and Napoleon had abolished the Holy Roman Empire, but like there was still this idea that if there was going to be a united German you know, greater Deutschland, it would be, it would include Austria. All right. That was, that view was to change. And that view is kind of forgotten in the mythologizing of what came next. So uh, in 1861, a new king came to the Prussian throne, Wilhelm I, you may have heard of him. Mm. He actually traveled to Königsberg to be crowned king of Prussia. Okay. So that was the first coronation since 1701 in the city. The other Prussian kings just kind of, they didn't have a big ceremony. But I think he was he was crowned in the Schlosskirche, and he did so on the anniversary of the Battle of Leipzig, where Napoleon had been defeated. So he was kind of making a point that like this is an important part of my kingdom. This is where I get my kingship from. Okay. The population was now about a hundred thousand. A decade later, Wilhelm I would become the Deutscher Kaiser, or the German Emperor, not the Emperor of Germany. Oh right, I, re- I recall this. Yeah. Which was an important distinction, because that would have upset the Austrians and what is a germany but he was definitely an emperor who was german so that was a bit of a constitutional um finessing so he would become part of this new empire and and east prussia and königsberg would be part of that too in reality we all know uh, his chancellor otto von bismarck ran the show oh yeah wilhelm is kind of the, the moral authority of the empire rather than the uh, the the, the figurehead. <laughs> and people have yeah. different opinions about Bismarck. They're not super relevant to the history of Königsberg. But um, an aside is that this is the era that Germany started acquiring overseas colonies. Very fashionable. So uh, Namibia, mm. we might remember, and Bougainville, yep. which we might talk about later this season. as another what? German acquisition. Hush, um, Hush. Part of German Hush Joe, Germany yeah. Guinea. Germany got into that game quite late. One policy of Bismarck's that is kind of relevant to... Königsberg and East Prussia more generally is that Prussian deportation um, were basically Poles who had some other citizenship who could be considered Russian or Polish were expelled en masse from East oh. Prussia, including Polish Jews, but not. it was mostly an ethnic thing rather than a religious thing. And that not is obviously now seen as a form of ethnic cleansing oh. because it was. Yeah. And he was quite, an, he's quite anti-Polish. And, and so he had, there was this, this policy of Kulturkampf, well, which was a kind camp. of a fight the against war. Catholicism. Yeah. yeah, the first culture war. And the fight against Catholicism in East Prussia took on a very anti-Polish character. So right. Because they're quite Catholic. Yeah. Yeah. There were plenty of Polish Lutherans, but um, yeah. there it was used as a tool to, to, as we said, do a bit of ethnic cleansing. But weirdly conservative East Prussian nobility the Junkers weren't that keen on this policy and and actually it led to Bismarck resigning as a, I think president of Prussia or minister president whatever the kind of prime minister of Prussia job and keeping just the chancellor of the empire job which um <laughs> cuz he 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 just couldn't he didn't have the authority with his own class anymore his own kind of nobility class and also there's a big population drain in the region in the late 19th century Uh, either to the USA or to the industrial rural region of Germany. So the population was in decline while the rest of Germany was going up by 15 or 20%, which is kind of remarkable. And this is called in German Ostflucht, where the clearing out of the east, basically. East flight. East flight, yeah.
3: We're we're going to talk about it a little bit later on um, when I I talk to, to Professor Eaton about it. But, I mean, my understanding is in around this period, while the rest of Germany is kind of developing uh kind of konigsberg east prussia area not so much it's kind of low, low yeah, it's level calling. agriculture yeah it's it's, it's yeah. like not making the money that the rest of germany is and it's it's kind of becoming more backward
1: it was kind of like there was it was a trade point for like scottish herring and stuff like it wasn't really yeah it wasn't what it used to be and the military relevance was kind of decreasing right i suppose as as germany became more of a defined like as a great power rather than just a series of disparate kingdoms that could have bits picked off them.
3: It kind of pulls the the centre of gravity westward. Towards what
1: we would now consider Germany. So, they built a stock exchange, a zoo, some newspapers, a football club and the population hit about 188,000 in and around the turn of the 20th century. Um, Someone I just want to briefly mention is possibly the first professional bodybuilder was a a Königsberg native. All right. Hmm. He 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 went by the name Eugene Sandov but he was obviously born Friedrich Wilhelm Muller because everyone in Königsberg is called Friedrich Wilhelm. Uh, 1867 to 1925, he was of German-Russian-Jewish descent, but raised a Lutheran, which is a thing I saw a few times with people around this era. A lot of Jews started converting.
3: Okay. And raising their children Lutheran. I guess culture wars will do that.
1: Yeah. Uh, But in 1901, he organized what's believed to be the first major bodybuilding competition uh, in the Royal Albert Hall in London.
3: It was just him, just flexing. People going, What the hell is this? Look how many weights I can lift.
1: Uh, he was the judge, along with the oh athlete God. and sculptor Charles Law's uh, Wit Wrong and Arthur Conan Doyle, the author of the oh, Sherlock Holmes noted madman. Yeah. He went to travel to India. He was a pioneer of yoga as exercise. Okay. Uh, and physical culture instructor to King George V of the UK in 1911. So, wow interesting character and kind of realised that with film and so on there was now an interest in just looking at big muscles and the feats of strength didn't impress people as much as just how big his muscles were so that's Eugene Sandov okay
2: season listeners might notice that in this episode and in our previous mini-sode that was released around Christmas time that we are using a few new stings and pieces of music that you won't have heard in previous episodes. Those are thanks to our friend Thomas O'Boyle, who uh, also composed the theme music to the podcast, which we've been using since the beginning. We also partially have to thank our patrons for the upgrade to the sound of the podcasts uh, this season, as well as Thomas. They very generously provide funding on an episode-to-episode basis for us. And so if you'd like to uh, support the show, if you enjoy the research that we do, and if you get some value out of it, we'd appreciate if you take a look at patreon.com forward slash 80dayspodcast. That's where you can support us, and that's where our patrons give towards the show so that we can keep it running. Without further ado, back to the show.
1: World War One. Not a lot happened in Königsberg in World War I, but the Russians did try to invade. as one of the first battles on the eastern front of World War I. Uh, basically, Russia wanted to hit a blow to the morale of Prussia, and hitting the Prussian heartland of the Reich and the old capital of Königsberg was seen as a good idea. Almost all German forces were at the western front in the part of World War I that we probably think of the most. But two armies were dispatched into East Prussia. The Germans lost the first major battle at Gumbinnen on August 20th, 1914, uh, and were in retreat. The Russians thought they were in full retreat, so they took time to regroup. They had really bad supply lines, so they, they, they needed that. There was a, a massacre of civilians in Abschwangen during that time, so 30 kilometres south of Königsberg, where Russian troops killed 74 German civilians in uh, Abschwangen and neighbouring Almenhausen. In retaliation for an officer being shot by German cavalry stickouts, so that's um, that's pretty awful, yeah, pretty grim. Luckily, seems to be the only atrocity committed in the region during World War One. Which I suppose, given what happened on the Western Front, is probably anyway. So Konigsberg it's was all bad, Joe. It's yeah. all bad. It's all bad. Königsberg was besieged by the Russians. I saw an interesting British newspaper article that seemed to claim that they'd occupied the city, but I think that was propaganda because it doesn't seem like they How did would they very have? well. Wow. But as I say, the, the Germans in retreat, their general seemed to be a bit cowardly. So uh, Paul von Hindenburg was called out of retirement to, return to, to, to lead the German force to turn around and fight the Russians. So he was a... Um, well, he'd later go on to be uh, president of the Weimar Republic, um, but he, mm. he was he was a, a East Prussian general, and um, he, they triumphed over the Russians at Tannenberg and the Missourian Lakes, forcing them out of East Prussia, and upon destruction of his army, General Samsonov shot himself. Um, right. Which is interesting response. And it wasn't until later that winter that they, they were completely pushed out and, and the Germans got a toehold in Russia and turned the tables. So the Treaty of Versailles uh, cut off East Prussia from Germany again, returning Royal Prussia to, to Poland. The Kaiser was forced to abdicate uh, at the end of World War I, and as I said, von Hindenburg became president in 1925 of this, this new republic, the Weimar Republic. Uh, Lithuania took some of the territories to the east of Königsberg, uh, up around the, the Koronian Spit, and Poland recovered its um, what it, sort of its territories. Professor Eaton had something to say about how Königsberg was seen by the Weimar Germans.
4: East Prussia was absolutely integral to Germany during the Weimar Republic between the wars uh, because it was a fringe, because it was cut off after Versailles by this Polish corridor. Germans of all stripes, both living in East Prussia and in Königsberg, and then elsewhere in Germany, focused even more on how this place was integral to the rest of Germany. Uh, they saw this as a bleeding border. And this is, um, this is also the case elsewhere in Germany, where some small territories were lost to Poland. And this bleeding border, uh, the idea was, was uh, Germany's open wound. And it really does explain a little bit um, the nationalist politics, which Hitler was part of, but not the originator of, th- that were designed to try to reattach this place to Germany. When peoples feel vulnerable uh, in a borderland or a vulnerable sort of, in in a sort of geopolitical sense, it's really a universal phenomenon that they project ever more strongly their integral uh, unity with the center. And so in Königsberg in East Prussia, uh, Germans really leaned on the uh, ancient myths of the place that the uh, which were true. These were myths. These were myths in the sense that they were stories they told about themselves, not that they were. Uh, necessarily false. Um, Myths about uh, the the city's founding by the Teutonic Knights in the 13th century, Uh, they emphasized that the land had been settled by Germans for hundreds and hundreds of years, and then here's where it gets debatable. The Germans, the Poles, and the Lithuanians uh, heavily debated what the ancient history of this place, and it made it all the more um, pressing for Germans there to assert Uh, that they were integrally German, integrally part of Germany, and that the spirit of German-ness, be it Protestant Lutheranism, be it the Teutonic Knights, be it um, the origins of the Prussian state, uh, they emphasized all of these pieces of the myth um, to try to uh, assert um, Königsberg's centrality to the history and and also the future of Germany. Uh, And so the Nazis, by tailoring the message Uh, could appeal to Konigsbergers and East Prussians, could appeal also across the nation to pointing out that East Prussia was this sort of national tragedy of Germany and that East Prussia's future would be Germany's future and that how necessary it was to save it and strengthen it as this um, bulwark of Germandom, as this uh, fortress of of German culture.
1: Then in the Weimar Weimar era, we enter sort of a rising tides of anti-Semitism in Germany, leading to... Obviously, the, the rise of Nazism. Uh, and these were not unnoted by Jews in Königsberg. It began to feel welcome. And I found a, a couple of notable people who left around this time. So uh, Leah Rabin, who would later be the wife of uh, Israeli Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin. Yitzhak Rabin. Oh, yeah. uh, she was Leah Schlossberg, born in 1928 in Königsberg. And her family relocated to Israel quite, quite soon after uh, the election of Hitler as chancellor which is where she met her husband at school. Yeah, might have been a good idea.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: And there was also a, a, a scientist called Fritz Lippmann, who was a Jewish native of Königsberg. He studied medicine and chemistry there. He also studied in Berlin. But at the University of Königsberg under Professor Hans Mirvine, he, he did some work in the 1920s, famous chemist, if chemists are interested. Um, and he later moved to the USA where he was awarded a Nobel Prize in medicine in 1945. Uh, he discovered coenzyme A, so... That's another famous Jewish native of Königsberg who who luckily got out. But from nineteen twenty eight, um a guy called Eric Koch came to the fore as a local leader of the Konigsberg Nazi Party. Uh, super nice guy. He was a populist oh promoted rapid industrialization of the agricultural province. And I think Professor Eaton did Professor Eaton have things to say about uh, Eric Koch? Did.
3: Yeah, we we had a, we had a chat about about the boy Eric, yeah.
4: Originally, in the 1920s, the Nazis didn't really know what to do in Königsberg. Uh, They did know what to do sort of nationally in talking about the place. Uh, But interestingly, inside East Prussia, the Nazis were some of the last party to gain a foothold, partly because it had started in Bavaria and it had spread outward from there. The Nazis just had the lowest percentage of the vote in East Prussia uh, in 1928. But once Hitler instructed the Nazis to, um, after the disastrous nationwide elections in 1928, to diversify their message and basically take it local, you know, take take the party into the villages, out of the cities where the workers were tending to vote for communists, and just say what locals wanted to hear. And what locals wanted to hear in East Prussia was all about the border, it was all about fears of Poland, uh, was all about rescuing uh Konigsberg's disastrous economy, even before the depression hit uh, the territory, because it was cut off from all of these trading routes, all of these um, former trading partners in connection with Germany was going through a terrible uh, state of economic depression. Uh, And so it had a very political, economic, and cultural uh, appeal, the way the Nazis were able to take that message and really more than any other party seemed to take it seriously, like they were actually going to do something about it. Uh, And the Nazis by 1932, 1933 had 55% of the vote in East Prussia. That was the best turnout of anywhere in Germany. So they went from the very lowest turnout to a virtual Nazi stronghold. Uh, And over the course of the 1930s, East Prussia became something of a model. Königsberg became something of a model because... It was with great bravado, the first place where Hitler um, and his uh, local party leader, um, Erich Koch could declare unemployment had been completely ob- obliterated, that everyone was employed. And this was just you know, a year or so after the depression or, or after the Nazis came to power. And so it was a huge propaganda win, right? That was, that was broadcast internationally and that this place would be the model for rest of Germany to follow. Um, now, it, it wasn't sustainable and there's all kinds of debates about you know about the Nazis and full employment and then when we look at the numbers, we see that it was a lot of inflation that was propped up and it wouldn't, over time, wouldn't have succeeded. But at the time, it was a big part of their PR.
3: Eric Koch, w- w- was he almost like the perfect man for the perfect time? And by that, I, I don't mean that he was in any way good. I mean in that his kind of um, almost kind of brainless ebullience uh, for the Nazi cause and at the same time this kind of willingness to direct fierce loyalty at exactly the person he needed to and that, you know, of course that was Hitler uh, that, that, that he was able to kind of go from this, this guy who's kind of almost given a, a bit of a bum assignment uh, of um, a region that wasn't it was a bit backward re- economically and so on and, and turned it into I don't know a quarter of Europe or exactly. <laughs> some, some, some enormous the portion of Europe considering um you know the Ukraine and, and so on the areas his, his authority kind of spread into I, I just found it really fascinating to read about because he, he's just uh, su- such a such a worm uh, just, and its and it's fascinating what, what you thought about him and how you how you read his character.
4: Yeah, it's also fascinating how little he's talked about in English. Now in Germany, he certainly has biographies written about him. Not nearly as much as maybe Hitler's generals or Himmler or Goebbels or Goering, Uh, but it is recognized that he was the kind of big strong man of the Nazi regional party bosses. But I think Eric Koch is fascinating. He was um, a self promoter, uh, who wasn't an ideologue, but was charismatic enough to collect people around him who thought they could use him, uh, and mm-hmm. and then he ended up using them as much or more, but creating a sort of bureaucratic mess in its wake, but mm-hmm. um, eager to enact great change, eager to bring all kinds of people into his circle. And so this, you know, Eric Koch is the Nazi... Party boss really played an outsized role in East Prussia. He really played, uh, and he made Königsberg his home, even though he was from far away in the Rhineland and the, the Ruhr Valley. And uh, by the time the war started, that party, uh, while uh, maintaining firm loyalty to Hitler, uh, was able to do a, a great deal on the local stage without uh, without anyone being able to intervene except Hitler himself.
2: All right, Mark, so uh we're we're sort of very much in the in the lead up to World War Two now. Um, what do you want to tell us about that?
3: Konigsberg kind of had been on the fringe for a really long time. No one really paying too much attention to it, kind of during the Weimar period, except that, you know, it became this kind of symbol, but you know, economically it wasn't really any great shakes. And and Eric Koch had kind of put his flag in it, I guess, and had kind of tried to make such a, a great success of, of Königsberg and, and had done really well on paper in terms of kind of uh, raising its productivity, raising its kind of economic profile and so on, uh, that it, it increased his um, his clout within the, Na- the Nazi party and also his his kind of, his relationship with Hitler, uh, his very personal relationship with Hitler was really robust. Lots of people kind of came at him and tried to kind of, um, you know, supplant his his power but they invariably failed because of his, his relationship with Hitler. Um, but he kind of used this to also try to kind of gather resources for Königsberg from from the right generally. So Königsberg was kind of throwing its weight around, uh, angling for, for funding, for, you know, beautification and buildings. And, you know, Königsberg is 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 the king's mountain. It's it's where, you know, kings are kinged. And he wanted it to be kind of recognized for that. Um, but because we were kind of nearing the kind of super rapid industrialization uh, of the kind of pre-war years of the Third Reich, there wasn't really that much money around. So, trying to kind of build up the case for it, he referred to the great assignment Königsberg will have to fill in the future Eastern Realm. The idea being that it was kind of the the easternmost bit of Germany, therefore it was going to be at the forefront, at the at the vanguard of all of the really awful stuff that Germany was about to do facing eastward wow yeah Lebensraum. Le- 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 mm. Lebensraum, in, indeed and i mean i mean that that that's effectively what happened i mean Kon- konigsberg did become very important and the whole the whole region became quite important kind of in in its in, in the intervening years uh, i believe there's a figure that um uh hitler even though it's, it, it is just south of konigsberg but the, the wolf slayer hitler spent i think a fourth of all of his time as chancellor in in the in yeah. in, in that uh, in that
2: base, I think that's where the the famous assassination attempt against him occurred as well. Yeah, yeah I believe so. oh yes. the uh,
1: Valkyrie. Yeah, yeah, mm. yeah. No, I literally had no idea, but like I sort of knew he was somewhere in the woods. But I, I'll be honest, I never really thought of. I didn't realize this was still part of Germany at this time until we started reading about yeah. it. Yeah, I, I speak for myself. I don't think of this when I think of Germany. Like I almost think of. Bits of uh, you know, I think of Alsace Lorraine. I think of all the Sudetenland. Those disputed bits, I would have never really thought about this, but existing.
3: Also, what's happening in nineteen thirty nine, the census said there was about three hundred and seventy two thousand people. Just giving you an idea of the scope. As as you said, Joe, the the persecution of of Jews had uh, been been ramping up. And in 1942, I hadn't actually heard of this, but I I knew that this meeting occurred. It was the the Vonsi Conference, basically where the the kind of final solution was was decided upon. Uh, But from that point on, Jews began to be deported to various Nazi concentration camps. uh, And the SS sent the first and largest group of Jewish deportees, uh, comprising 465 Jews, to a camp in Belarus in 1942. But there was also uh, people sent to a camp in the Czech area, I guess probably the Sudetenland, uh, and Auschwitz as well, uh, but uh, smaller numbers. And I think a lot of that was because so many Jews had already left Königsberg in the previous years. There actually wasn't a huge Jewish population by the time the, the war had started.
1: Yeah, and Kristallnacht had been quite dramatic there as well, I think.
3: Yes. Mm. Yeah, you're right. Actually, they're, 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 that that did trigger a massive uh, flight. But I, I think I also recall reading that a lot of the, the Jews that left Königsberg didn't necessarily get that far because they were trying to flee west, but a lot of them only got to kind of another city in Germany. Obviously, that, mm. that wasn't, unfortunately, far, far enough. Um, yeah. So in 1943, just to to kind of look outwards into the world, things that were happening that would impact Königsberg in the very near future, the Tehran Conference of 1943 was one of the key meetings between the the leaders of the Allies, like, uh, like Yalta and, and various other conferences. But they agreed at this meeting to partition Germany after the war, Bearing in mind, kind of at this point, you know, the, the German war effort was, was, was under massive pressure and it, it did look, you know, eventually that the Allies would win. And anyway, as a part of that partition, they did agree that the, the Russians would, would kind of have a, a big controlling stake in, in Konigsberg. As I recall, Konigsberg it, it will get partitioned itself, but uh, ultimately will, will come under serious Russian control.
1: But what wasn't the, I- the idea was basically that Prussia was the problem. So the 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 myth of Prussia and German imperialism were intertwined now, and the only way to kind of crush that forever
2: was to delete Prussia, die, slice and dice up Prussia. Yeah,
3: yeah. Uh, undo. Well, I I definitely have read that. I didn't realize that was the narrative at the uh, at the Tehran because like
1: H- Hitler had had uh, maybe not at this conference specifically, but definitely uh, as this becomes the final policy. Like you know, Hitler had had Friedrich Great's portrait in his bunker. Right. He worshipped this. He was an Austrian who was Austrian, lived yeah. in Bavaria. Like he, he was not a Prussian, but like this this military might of Russia romanticized this yeah. myth of German nationalism that's very much not really how it how it happened. You know, I kind of tried to emphasize that, that like there was nothing sure. There was nothing um, foreordained about Prussia becoming the chief German power. They just ended up on the right side of the Napoleonic Wars, and ended up in possession of the industrial heartland at the right time. It could have been anyone.
3: Anyway, uh, so 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 back to back to Königsberg. Um, effectively, you know, Königsberg was pretty untouched by the war, as, as you're kind of getting. I'm kind of flashing through the main years. Um, but the the fall of Königsberg was, I guess, particularly dramatic because. In all things, it was the most eastern part of, of Germany and and it was the first part of Germany that the Russians got and to. They wanted revenge. They they did. I'm I'm not gonna say a lot of the stuff that I read, it's pretty pretty mm. extremely bleak stuff, but just to kind of say that it, it, it kind of kicks off in 1944. In August of 1944, the RAF conducts a massive bombardment and carpet bombing of uh, Königsberg. That's the incendiary bombing destroyed or seriously damaged 41% of all buildings in the city. And more than 100,000 people were displaced by the strike. So that's kind of somewhere between a third and a quarter of the population wow. at that stage. So uh, this is a first-hand account. Werner Tirpitz, uh Remembering the Flames. Everything was on fire. Our things, our church, our school, and the house of my violin teacher, my violin, even the sack of blackberries which we had just gathered. Everything I had ever owned was now ashes. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Um. And that kind of kicks off basically like a, a huge panic because suddenly they realize, oh wow, it's 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 on our doorstep. It's it's happening to us. Yeah. Now.
2: After after so many years exactly. of, of being isolated, now suddenly it's it's here. Yeah. And just to
3: kind of, I guess, mention Eric Koch. He he had um, he had turned what was sort of a pretty low level gig, kind of runi- running running uh, Koenigsberg and surrounding areas. He he kind of used that as a springboard to gain massive control over the lands that the the Nazis had taken over. So, you know, Ukraine, pretty much like he he was he was running the Ukraine. But Konigsberg was the capital for all this. This was kind of his his power base. That's incredibly broad. Yeah, it's it's huge. And and that's the thing. During the war, Konigsberg was was a, a center of an awful lot of power. Kind of administratively speaking, not necessarily so important militarily because you have to say that kind of Hitler kind of kept that close to close to himself, and you know the SS were a state within a state, but th- there was also the German government, government, and that was kind of uh, Koch there, kind of the regional Koch was government.
2: Like our guy in the east. Exactly, basically. exactly
3: that. Um, anyway, so. Um, from January 1945 the Soviets were making slow progress in part because Hitler's orders demanded that every East Prussian village be defended like a fortress which the enemy, enemy could only take by letting his blood flow. Ooh, what a what a great guy. Uh, Cook uh, evacuated by ship uh, and ordered the crew to bar the ship to anyone else joining him. Uh, very much the hero of this tale, so he he gets away straight away. He's the first one out the door because uh, he's uh, wow. he's a, he's a worm. He's a he's a coward. He's a he's a little sniveling jerk. Uh, anyway, um, uh, so the Nazi officials uh, were dragged out into the street and shot by the Russians as they invaded kind of town after town and village after village. reprisals were pretty general really really awful stuff uh, and i'm not going to read all of the really awful stuff that's out there um you know it's it's very googleable uh i can't recommend that
2: most people will be aware but this is, as you said mark this is the first piece of germany essentially that the russians exactly. reach and you know if you know anything about world war ii history you'll know the russians suffered massively. Uh, at the hands of the Germans, so
3: it's bloodlust essentially. It's it's vengeance. It's it, it's a savage reprisal, and and they feel yeah. completely yeah. justified in doing it. Um, and yeah, yeah which is terrible. This is what happened. it's it's, it's it mm-hmm. literally kind of humanity switch off. Uh, that 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 that's what's happening here. Yeah. Um, so evacuations. Uh, evacuation of the Baltic port of uh, Pilau. Uh, it was against Hitler's orders, uh, of course. Uh, Grand Admiral Karl Dunitz gathered over a thousand ships, civilian and naval, and it was estimated that his fleet saved around 2.5 million civilians from the general area, not just not just Königsberg. Uh, the other route of escape was uh, a narrow sand spit to Danzig. Um, I saw that this was, it was kind of flagged as being similar to like a, a, a German Dunkirk was, was the view of it at the time. On the 26th of January, thousands of refugees were killed while waiting for ships to evacuate them as an ammunition depot exploded after a Soviet aerial attack. On the 30th of January, a passenger liner, the Wilhelm Gustloff, was sunk by a Soviet submarine, killing 8,000 of the 9,000 passengers. Uh, And I read lots of things like that. It was just an absolute panic run for the door. And there were were ships that sank. There were ships that were blown up. Uh, I guess there were pretty easy pickings. You know, they're they're non-military ships in lots of cases just being picked out of the water as people are just trying to kind of make that quick jump over to the rest of mainland Germany. On the 19th of February, uh, the Germans broke the Soviet lines and opened a corridor between Königsberg and Pilau. Uh, They would hold this corridor until the beginning of April, when the Battle of Königsberg would begin. Uh, So this is now a corridor out to the coast from the city of Königsberg. So lots and lots of people just running through that corridor. General Otto von Lash He led the German Königsberg garrison, which had entrenched its five divisions of about 130,000 men in the city's fortifications, but only about 35,000 of those men were actual soldiers, the rest of them were old men and boys. There was uh, 15 forts in the outermost uh, concentric rings around the city, uh, and they also had pillboxes and foxholes dug in all around the area. On the 1st of April, uh, the Battle of Königsberg begins. Uh, it was subjected to heavy artillery bombardment uh, by the Russians to soften the defences, and on the fourth of April, Königsberg lost uh, electric power.
2: Just to point out, this is this is less than a year after that RAF bombing that you. Yes, uh, that,
3: that was that was August nineteen forty four. So the, the the city is taking a complete hammering. It's it's being yeah. washed away in a, a tide of warfare. On the fifth of April, uh, the fog that had been blocking Soviet pilots from actually bombing the place, the fog lifted, and the aircraft joined in on a, a massive bombardment. Hans von Landorf noticed that there was little or no anti-aircraft action from the city. We felt as if we were sailing on an ocean in a sinking ship. On the 6th of April, 137,000 Soviet urban warfare troops, they've been training specifically in urban warfare for, for the invasion of Königsberg, rushed into the city with 530 tanks and a third of the entire Red Air Force. Um, you know... The thing that is obviously about to happen happens, and and the lines fell, the Soviet commanders calling in their reserves, defensive lines were falling by midday. On the 7th of April, German forces regrouped and attempted to counterattack, some casualties on the Russian side, but they they ultimately failed, of course, uh, one by one. Otto van Lash radioed Hitler for permission to surrender, but, you know, he said no, of course, because he's awful. Does he ever say he yes? Never says I yes. feel like he's always
2: he's always fight to the last man. Yeah. Like it's never it's never Yeah, yeah, you you
3: should surrender. Un- until no. he was the last man, in which case he he blew his brains out.
1: Yeah. Look 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 looking at his his picture of Friedrich the Great, kind of going on
3: I did this for you. You lied to me, Freddie. Um 8th of April, German troops attempt to break out of their encirclement, but the Soviets cleared out one section of the city at a time. Entire German companies were buried as Soviet artillery took down one key building after another. The young boys and old men of the, uh, of the German army fought frankly to save their home city, but with vintage World War I rifles." Uh, in the early hours of the ninth of April, Nazi Party authorities announced the city was about to fall. Swarms of civilians rushed onto all the major roads. It was unofficially agreed upon that the first Soviet troops into Königsberg got the watches, second got the women, and troops entering afterwards were only entitled to the leftovers. Uh, writer Arno Serminski, who lived in the East Prussia at the time, recalled a young Soviet soldier with rows of watches up his arm. It's
1: it's this this is like medieval. Oh yeah, really barbarous stuff. It's it's
3: right? Mad Max stuff. It's yeah. it's like. It, it's the the bits that you assume happened before the Mad Max movie, uh, where society is just washed away. So um, Otto van Lash eventually surrenders on the 9th of April. Uh, the fighting ceases by midnight. Hitler is furious, denouncing Lash as a traitor of Germany and sentences him to death. But there's nobody there to enforce the order. Just a couple of quotes about the fall. This is from a book called uh, Battleground Prussia, the assault on Germany's Eastern Front. A young chap suddenly burst into tears because he had still not found a watch. He held up three fingers. He would shoot three men unless he was given a watch immediately. Finally, a watch appeared from somewhere with which he disappeared, beaming with joy. We were no more than dressed clothes dummies with pockets. They only saw me from the shoulders down. Um, And uh, just uh, one last quote. Although I was longing for Hitler's defeat, we lamented Königsberg's fate from the bottom of our heart. At that moment began the ending of the 690 year history of Königsberg, began the dying of a city that lost all that was characteristic of it for all time. The people of Königsberg shall never expunge these nights of terror from their memory. I'm kind of trying to provide these quotes because this the stuff, the actual detail of what was happening, uh it's 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 too grim to recount, frankly. Uh I I don't want to say it. Um they they're just mm. t- some things that are too bleak. Um anyway that that's how it went uh, absolutely washed away by the Russian army it was it was you know immediately occupied uh, and is you know effectively Königsberg is no longer a uh, a going concern as of right now 1945 Okay uh yeah so
2: uh, as as a palate cleanser Oof. after all that we are going to listen to a piece of music by a guy called Heinz Thiessen uh who was born in Königsberg in 1887 and seemingly classed as undesirable by the Nazis so uh yep.
1: yeah Be- being undesirable to the Nazis seems like <laughs> a-, a good that's the kind well, of thing I'd put
2: on my LinkedIn profile exactly. alright
1: So, Luke, um, when we look at a map nowadays, we see Konigsberg isn't there. Yes. Goodbye, Konigsberg. <laughs> correct.
3: We struggle to
2: name uh, this episode it, as a result of you. Yeah. It was not completely wiped off the map, um, but uh, pretty much. I mean, technically um, it was wiped off the map, so, Luke.
3: It's That's actually what's happened. It's and the then something else was drawn on the map.
2: Yeah. In the immediate aftermath of the war, there was, I mean, chaos is basically the only way to describe it. Mm. Um the Soviet military took over the running of the city mm. and they were, I mean, you know, as 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 bad as they were uh, during the conflict, like after the war had officially ended, they were they were still not, you know, in in any description uh, decent to the to the Germans who lived there uh, and remained in the city. Starvation and mass homelessness uh, made for a very cruel winter of 1945 to 1946 and by the spring of 1946, more than one in five Germans who had remained in East Prussia uh, at the end of the war had died. I took a, a snapshot from um, Professor Eaton's paper. Uh, she she just kind of like racks up the the mortality of the German population in Königsberg between sort of mid 1945 and early 1946, and just the numbers are are pretty staggering. Like you're talking over 2,000 people a month, um, just of just the German population. Uh, were dying in those months, so um, it was bleak. The Soviet state essentially started to to put plans in place uh, to rebuild the city. Uh, It was initially set to become Baltisk, I think is how you pronounce that, but then the sort of head of state of the USSR, Mikhail Kalinin, uh, on the 3rd of June 1946, passed away, and uh, that leads to suggestions that uh, Kaliningrad now, you know, the city be named after him.
1: Okay. But that there was the, the initial names would suggest they were seeing this as a a, a balticization or a re-Slavicization of...
3: But they're, they're kind of just calling it after the major stuff that's around there. They're just kind of like, what's the local sea Baltic? Yeah, yeah but, but, mm-hmm. but that was
1: also the name of the Slavic people, or somewhat Slavic people who used to live here were the Balts. So, you know, old Prussians were called mm-hmm. Balts.
2: They were officially renamed on uh, the 4th of July, 1946. Uh, and i believe even now the 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 city day is the fourth of july um which is a bit odd but yeah that's that's uh that's the city day of kaliningrad <laughs>
3: so patriotic
2: there was actually also uh, i read there was a there was a, a town by the name of kaliningrad in uh, the moscow oblast so in in the u s s r uh sort of the main part of the u s s r uh and that duplication uh basically caused like letters and things to be sent to the wrong town um oh, for a number of years okay. until the problem was resolved in nineteen ninety six. Uh it took them that long. I so I, I leaned heavily on um Professor Eaton's writings on this actually um for this section because she's she's done a lot of research into this into this period. You know, the transition between being a German city yeah. and being a, a Soviet city. Initially for the couple of years after the war there seemed to have been sort of a concerted effort to to sort of integrate uh, Germans into the into the city. Okay. To quote her, uh, "Germans and Soviets lived together in the ruins of Königsberg for over three years. Uh, nowhere else in East Central Europe did such a concert, uh did such a concentrated population of German civilians remain outside of Germany for so long after the war, and nowhere else did German and Soviet citizens, once mutual enemies, cohabitate for such an extended period of time." Hmm. So. That's not really what I was expecting uh, to read when I when I was assigned this section. Right.
1: So the city's destroyed, but a lot of people stuck around for a bit, for a, a few
2: years because um, it was home. Yeah, exactly. Um, but due to a lack of housing and uh, sort of unsanitary living conditions, obviously a lot of the infrastructure has been destroyed. So uh, Kaliningrad had the highest rate of infectious diseases in the entire Soviet Union after the war. Okay. Um, and in particular, the level of venereal disease apparently was so massive. That the uh, oh. the the Soviet government had to send in numerous task forces to try to control uh, the levels of infection uh, that were spreading throughout the city. Professor Eaton even even reports that, uh, at points there were there were what she describes as feral children uh, living in the city and 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 sort of pickpocketing,
1: like war orphans essentially.
2: Basically orphans, yeah. Um, now the Soviets did set up orphanages throughout the city. A Soviet orphanage swell. That's a dream, yeah yeah Jesus. and many german adults were actually sent to schools to re-educate them in the ways of socialism uh and there was a, an official anti-fascist club which was established which all germans were uh strongly encouraged to join right uh, which i assume means if you don't join it then uh you know there's going to be some consequences so you
3: like fascism you german jerk
2: yeah so, yeah. yeah so um more but uh to rebuild the place the soviet government continues to send people uh, there right okay to to kind of boost the population and also to 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 sort of you know turn the city more soviet and as a result the city becomes sort of hard pressed to, to sort of feed and house everyone and so a number of local leaders began to agitate against the germans deeming them quote unquote the enemy within
1: aha uh-huh. it's hard to overlook that you know during the war russian russian königsberg citizens had to wear st- stars that said ost on them to indicate yeah. that they were easterners and not germans you know but
3: poles i think as well there was a lot
1: of that too history yeah. mirrors itself
2: yeah i mean to be honest i'm i'm surprised that this state of affairs lasted for as long as it yeah. did yeah. but in november 1948 then after hearing sort of rumors and and rumblings of uh incurable nazism uh and again the the, the sort of slow p- pace of reconstruction which i think uh, professor eaton argues was was largely also down to the fact that the soviet government was not sending enough uh, funds yeah, to right. the city administrators to um to actually rebuild the place the government essentially gave the order to to expel the german population to east germany Um, And so almost all the German residents who remained in the city, an estimated 200,000 out of the city's pre-war population of around 315,000, were expelled. And I'm going to quote again directly from uh, Professor Eden's writings here. She says, The Soviet Union had uh, annexed Nazi Königsberg to replace the ethnic exclusivity of fascism with the internationalist universalism of socialism. But instead, they erected Kaliningrad as a Russian national homeland. Complete with a Slavic myth of origin mm-hmm. and ethnic requirements for membership. In other words, Soviet Kaliningrad destroyed Nazi Königsberg only to rebuild it on the same foundations.
1: That's that's a that's a very well phrased yep. put down. That's a hell of a paragraph <laughs> of uh, how totalitarianism always rhymes.
2: As the westernmost territory of the USSR, the Kaliningrad Oblast was obviously of crucial importance during the Cold War. Mm. Uh, and became home to the Soviet Baltic fleet during the 1950s. But because of its strategic importance, it was closed off to foreign visitors during this time. And to be honest, I I couldn't find a lot about sort of 1950s to 1970s uh, Kaliningrad probably for this reason, because it was very little written and known about it at that time. But somewhere between 200,000 and 500,000 soldiers were stationed in the region during the Cold War. And an interesting anecdote that I found was a new building, very Soviet-looking in the brutalist style, called the House of Soviets, was planned as a city center showpiece skyscraper in the mid-1960s, and it would sit on the site of the old Konigsberg Castle. Oh, my. I have a quote here from um, a guy called C.J. Wilkinson, who has a great blog called Europe Between East and West. It says, in 1968, the leader of the Soviet Union, Leonid uh, Brezhnev, issued a directive that the ruins of Konigsberg Castle were to be blown up and cleared from the center of Kaliningrad. Brezhnev, as a true communist ideologue, stated that the castle represented a hornet's nest of militarism and fascism. Despite the protests of intellectuals and preservationists, it was not long after Brezhnev's decree that the castle ruins were dynamited and bulldozed. Mm-hmm. And over 600 years of history exploded into dust and was then swept from the surface of the city center. Wow. The physical remnants of the castle were gone. Beneath the surface, though, the situation was much different. Subterranean chambers of the castle still existed, and these would exact a, a bit of poetic vengeance on the Soviets. For the rest of history, the castle has been more than a memory. It has been a curse upon Soviet efforts to recreate the site in their own image. Basically, what happened was that uh, they invested a huge amount of money into it, and it started to sink uh, <laughs> oh, as soon as it was constructed. I think because of poor planning, but also because of the you know the fact that they were trying to build over a, an ancient castle settlement. Um, which had a lot of uh, tunnels and, and subterranean chambers. That,
1: that ideological position of like you know there is no history really, I mean, unsurprisingly, upsets me. Um, <laughs> yeah, given, given my choice of hobby.
2: <sighs> yeah, so it, I mean, you can look it up. The House of Soviets. It's um, it's a it's a really terrible looking building. Uh, it was never occupied, uh, as far as I can tell, uh, and it was later crowned the ugliest building on Russian soil. <laughs> Um, which is, you know, I'm sure there there's heavy co- competition for that title. A lot of the stuff that I was reading was saying like, oh, it's it still stands there today, and it and it does. But it should. But um, this is a a rare bit of very uh, up to date news. Demolition of the building was announced on 12th of November 2020, oh. and demolition works are be- are expected to begin in early 2021. So yeah, d- during the Cold War period, uh, the ports of Kaliningrad also struggled to attract business. And not only were the port authorities unfamiliar with sort of the, the, the free trade system, uh, but also the bureaucratic procedures were rigid and time consuming. And instead, traders would would turn to, you know, the, the nearby ports, to, ports of uh, Gdansk mm. and Riga and Tallinn. The subsequent sort of poverty that was inflicted on city and high levels of, of unemployment and crime drew concern from nearby states. The area itself was administered by the planning committee of the Lithuanian SSR, although it had its own Communist Party committee. Uh, but the leadership of the Lithuanian SSR refused to annex the territory. And so it was. It essentially was sort of floating, administered by the central government, oh, wow. as far as I can tell, but not very well. In 1965, the population of the city was around 250,000. And after the fall of the USSR uh, in the late 80s, neighboring Lithuania and former Soviet republics gained their independence, again, cutting Kaliningrad off from Russia proper. Kaliningrad was supposed to develop in the post-Soviet era into a quote-unquote Hong Kong of the Baltic, yeah. uh, but that uh, corruption deterred many potential investors, unfortunately.
4: The way that Kaliningrad is positioned in Russia really has strong analogs and echoes to the way Königsberg was positioned in Germany um, after the First World War. It's a place that thrives on being a port city and yet geopolitically is cut off from many of those opportunities. And that creates a little bit of a tension uh, between isolation and inclusivity. And I think Kaliningraders feel that uh, very acutely. They are on various uh, sides of the political spectrum in their support for the current Russian government. But I think what they do share is a sense that they are geographically closer to Europe and that they, um, many of them uh, when travel is easy, travel to Poland, uh, travel to Lithuania, travel to the EU—in other words, for shopping trips, for weekend trips, and vacations—in the ways that only wealthier Russians um, elsewhere um, in Russia would be able to do. And so, this uh, this sort of ability to go back and forth to their neighbors, which sometimes has been threatened um, in terms of ability to travel, but often is is really a part of the culture. Has shaped Kaliningraders, giving them a sense that they are somehow part of Europe, and yet also part of Russia. They don't think they see that as a zero sum. That has also led um, Moscow in the Russian government to invest uh, a great deal uh, of energy and money in keeping Kaliningrad politically and culturally tied to the rest of Russia. So I think it's no accident that Kaliningrad was a World Cup city recently uh, and that there's been huge investment in tourism for Russians to go uh, by declaring that Kaliningrad would be a gambling region, sort of Las Vegas style, to go to resort communities. Uh, There is a very lovely Baltic sea coast. It's not fully developed infrastructurally, but there's been a lot of effort into doing that, creating maybe uh, a lot of summer homes for rich Russians to go and take weekend trips there. It's a very quick flight from Central Russia. And so there's been a lot of investment there. Uh, It has to be the case that way because lots of economic opportunities sponsored by the EU in the 1990s were starting to dwindle already by the mid-2000s. There were all kinds of investments in manufacturing and favorable tariffs and, uh, and favorable trade relations for buying goods and selling goods to Europe that were in part manufactured in Kaliningrad. And a lot of those deals have sort of beatered out. You know, this was in the sort of early post-Soviet days of enthusiasm for integration. And that's, that's um, Russia has shut some of them down. Others were, they pulled the plug on the European side. And so I think that uh, Russia's really invested in showing that to Kaliningraders, that they are not forgotten because the political consequences of forgetting that place are um, palpable. Uh, so in
2: 1990, in the final settlement treaty, uh, Germany officially renounced all, any outstanding claims to, to Konigsberg or Kaliningrad. Um, But interestingly, I I thought in, in 2010, uh, a story broke where in the same year, 1990, um, there was a claim, uh, Der Spiegel uh, published a a report that said that uh, Kaliningrad had been offered back to Germany in 1990. Oh, uh, because they were paying the money. Uh, But this was denied by uh, Mikhail Gorbachev uh, when this, when this report came out. Uh, so I've got a quote here from a guy called Stefan Berger who's writing in The Guardian uh, that says, you know, uh, kind of on this report, which was obviously widely published in, in Germany and uh, and around Eastern Europe, but might, might not have been uh, as widely known about in, in kind of our uh, part of the world. He says, uh, the offer had been made in a secret telegram sent to the German embassy in Moscow by one of the most senior Soviet generals at the time, uh, Gele Batinin. And uh, as Batanin is now dead, it is difficult to reconstruct exactly what was and what was not offered in the context of negotiations preparing for the re- reunification in G- of Germany in 1990. Gorbachev, though, denies that Batanin was acting on behalf of the Soviet government. That should be taken with a pinch of salt, as there can be no doubt that in the, that the 1990 Soviet leadership was desperate to secure loans of billions of euros from the German government. The Germans, however, were lukewarm about the offer, allegedly telling the Soviets that reunification was the country's priority, and that it regarded the Kaliningrad region as a Soviet problem.
3: I, I, I chatted to, do, to Nicole Eaton about this. Um, I, we might put the clip in. Sure.
4: It's a fascinating consequence of Germany's utter defeat in the war and the uh, rightful demonization of Nazism that mourning lost German territory has become virtually politically not, uh, taboo. It is really only the staunch nationalists, often very old, elderly people who hold on to this idea of the lost homeland. I think now, um, and Germany certainly never as a state would try to claim this territory. It's really so taboo. But there's great deal of curiosity, all kinds of very touching and sometimes sad stories about um, old Germans who make their way to Kaliningrad to find the homes where they grew up. And a lot of Russians tell the stories about some old German man or woman appearing at the door, you know, with tears and and in the best stories, they have a lunch and a drink together and hug at the end and recognize their common humanity and keep in touch perhaps Uh, in some of the more bitter stories the Germans who go there come back and think that this place has been neglected and is run down and they may see a drunk or some kind of they see their old house in disrepair uh, and it's it's very um, bitter feeling for them and so the stories really run the whole gamut but I think uh, as a whole Germany doesn't focus on the east um, and the lost German east the way that it Had for maybe only the first couple decades. Um, From what I know about Alternative for Deutschland and these other populist uh, and nationalist groups arising in Germany, that the majority of them are focusing less on this lost territory, that was the older generation's question, and they're focusing more on the sort of race and cultural tensions within Germany's current borders. Uh, questions about refugees, questions about European integration, and how much they want to be uh, a part of of uh, this common idea of Europe, um, and so I think that those questions are much more invigorating uh, okay. for today's generations. But I I wouldn't doubt that that some of them are playing on these old wounds too. Okay, a, a
3: bit more blood than soil, then for sure. I think the yeah. blood.
4: I think the blood is is a, exactly. Is a, a greater motivator than the soil today.
2: <laughs> so, we're now into modern day. Um, so, yeah, what does anybody want to want to throw around some modern day stuff?
3: Um, can I mention food? Yeah, for sure. Again, leaning on Professor Professor Eaton's work, but I've also corroborated this elsewhere. She's been the,
2: the bedrock of this episode, I feel like.
3: She's made of amber. She, she's been very helpful. So thanks again
2: to her for her contribution.
3: She she's written an awful lot of stuff she in has. this and also took the time to speak yep. to us. So big thanks to her. Um but yeah, just two recipes. One is uh, Königsberger Klops, which is uh, King's Mountainer Balls. Nice. also known as sauce klops. Uh so sauce balls, I guess. Um, but uh, it's a German speciality of meatballs in a white sauce with capers, so maybe I could I could see that. Also, Königsberger Fleck, which is cooked beef bones, oh, uh, which I guess is just like a beef okay. stock, really. Um, vegetables, um, a well-washed and diced rumen, which mm. is veal stomach, um, served with terrine, marjoram, mustard, pepper, and vinegar. Not so, not so into that, that one. That does
1: sound German, though. I'll give them that.
3: Very German. Just just the bits. Just give me the bits just of the like this bit of animal yeah. and also this bit of a different animal. None of the food bits, the other bits, mm. please.
1: It sounds awful.
2: <laughs> oh god. Yes it just, does.
3: Just the hair and the eyes.
2: nice. <laughs> oh. oh, yes. Uh yeah, I got a little bit on the economy. Woo. In 2017, the nominal GDP of uh, the Oblast. Was uh, seven billion equivalent to around seven thousand US dollars per capita?
3: That's bad. Uh,
2: and on a national level, I'm compare. I would compare that to uh, similar to Indonesia, Mongolia, or our right. old friend Namibia. So hmm. not favorable okay. for you know a a city within the not in the EU, obviously, but um you know that sits within the EU's sort of territories. Um, it's 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 not great. Um, it's pushing itself as a tourist destination. Nowadays, uh, with the with the kind of crazy coastline features that we talked about, uh, and right. also amber is is still a, a source of income, but um, yeah, I, my my impression is that it's not doing so great um, economically speaking.
1: I uh, I just wanted to mention a, a a rapid fire list of authors and and similar people who were born here, in case sure. anyone loves them.
3: W- will we know any of them? Um, you'll know
1: some of what they did. So E.T.A. Hoffman. Uh, was the author of the novella okay. that the Nutcracker Ballet was based on, born in hmm. Königsberg. All right. Uh, 1776 to 1822. Fanny Lievold was a feminist and German-Jewish author. That's uh, uh, Abraham Mapu was the first Hebrew novelist who really inspired David Ben-Gurion. Okay. Friedrich Radsuweit from 1876 to 1932 was an author and publisher who moved to Berlin and founded the first LGBT publishing house, I think, and campaign organizations in Berlin. Cool. And, uh, yes, Agnes Miegel was an, a poet known for, her, an author known for her idyllic stories of East Prussia of her childhood. Uh, but she's quite controversial now and statues of her get, uh, you know, protested out because uh, she was very keen on uh, Hitler. Oh, no.
2: Oh, oh right. Okay, that'll do it.
1: Yeah, those c- are just some people who see you later. not m- right. much we want to say on. But if, if you if you love those authors, this is where they're from.
3: Yeah, uh, just to to mention, because uh, she was so so generously giving of her time. Uh, just Professor Eaton uh, is is working on a, a book. Um, the the book is not out yet. It is It is only a, a draft manuscript. Uh, she was generous enough to let us have a, a, a cheeky look at it, which was really really helpful. Um, but uh, she she told me to mention that it it may be available by twenty twenty two, and it may be called uh, German Blood, Slavic Soil likely to be released via uh, Cornell University Press but uh watch out for that when it comes but uh yeah should be should be interesting
2: hopefully you are listening to this podcast before that book has been published <laughs> 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 the editing Indeed. process does take a while but uh I think we can safely say it'll be out before 2022 so yeah um keep an eye out for uh, Professor Eaton's book and um yeah we thank her again for uh helping out so much with this episode um let's see anything else guys that we want to mention before we go Nah. All right. I'm good. Okay, so you can find more episodes of the podcast uh wherever you are listening to this podcast right now. You can also find more episodes at 80dayspodcast.com. You can get in touch with us if you like this episode, uh send us an email at 80dayspodcast@gmail.com at or find us on social media, at Instagram, Facebook or Twitter, just search 80 Days podcast. If you like the episode, we would really appreciate if you would let us know uh by leaving us a review on the apple podcast store it really helps other people to find the show or, or alternatively just uh, tell a friend uh, if you have a bit of spare change rattle around in your pocket uh, you can put it towards our patreon uh, which you can find on patreon.com forward slash 80 days podcast
1: we will accept marks or rubles we will indeed
2: uh, or pretty much anything you can find in your pockets uh, we thank all of our patreons uh, as ever who power the show we couldn't do the show without them you can find more about each of us, if you care to do so, at uh, our Twitter profile or at our website. And you can also find show notes uh, in your podcast app, wherever you happen to be listening to this, or on 80 Thank you very much for listening, and uh, we'll see you next time.
1: in
3: Bye.